kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Nanny, as is traditional, tonight we will start off with the CASA update. Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 421-2017. Hi Alex, how are you this evening? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, so what is new and exciting? Lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's new and exciting about vaping? Well, I'll get the easy stuff out of the way. Um, I sent an update out today to folks in Alaska. Senate Bill 63 is going to yet another committee hearing. Um, there were lots of comments uh, on this bill. Um, for those that don't know, SB 63 is essentially expanding the state's indoor clean air law to prohibit smoking in bars and restaurants and a lot of places where um, smoking was smoking prohibition was sort of voluntary or they could at least have a smoking section. Mm -hmm. um, and it also includes e-cigarette, the use of e-cigarettes in their smoking definition. Nice. Um, so there's been a lot of comments about separating vapor products from the definition um, of smoking and certainly a lot of comments about bars, um, lots of rural space in Alaska and right. um, certainly plenty of opportunities for people to not hang out in an establishment where smoking is allowed if they, right. if they want that. So mm -hmm. um, uh, anyway, it's uh, going back to a committee hearing on Tuesday at 8 a.m. And okay. uh, I'm, I'm not entirely certain uh, if they still have some public testimony that they need to get through or uh, if they're just going to talk about it, consider amendments and uh, and vote on it. Okay. Um, amendments to the bill are due Monday morning. Um, okay. and, uh, I, I, I hope that someone will be proposing an amendment to separate vapor from, from the bill at the very least. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's that. And we have our engagement up urging people to send emails. Okay. Um, the other not so simple thing, but it's just legislation um, Oregon 
has a tobacco 21 bill that is moving right along it's it's gone through the senate and now it is in the house um the house committee on health care and uh this is senate bill 754 Mm -hmm. um tobacco 21 so it raises the age to purchase cigarettes and vapor products and all tobacco products from 18 to 21 uh and this has a hearing on um on monday the 24th um if you live in oregon you got an alert from us and there are oregon vapor advocacy people who are uh, a part of this and i i took some time last night and reviewed um the committee hearing from back in february and uh there was some some good testimony from some um some folks that own shops work in shops uh you know, if this law passes, they're going to have to fire people that are under the age of 21. Um, and of course, you know, I, I was impressed to hear stories from people that were between the ages of 18 and 21 who, you know, they picked up smoking as a young person and, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't, they didn't fake their way through purchasing cigarettes. Right. Um, nowadays it's 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 pretty difficult to do um Mm -hmm. you know clerks are supposed to card people that look under the age of 27 right um you know when i was coming up there wasn't as strict enforcement so when i was 16 years old um you know i always felt like i was sort of qualifying my age by pulling up in a car and Mm -hmm. you know whatever i was tall so right maybe i could pass for 18 and i did for for a couple years Well, that's between the ages of 16 and 18. Um, And if I ever got carded, I would say, oh, whoops, I left my ID at home. You know, like it it wasn't hard. Um, And also my dad smoked, so I was able to steal cigarettes from him. And that's what I think a lot of young people who, uh, you know, the most vulnerable young people are the ones who have parents or close family members or friends that smoke. Um, it is essentially unbridled access to cigarettes. And so there were several stories like that. This was, you know, people that, that got up and said, I started stealing cigarettes from my grandmother, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and raising the purchase age to 21 does nothing, nothing to keep those cigarettes out of the hands of young people. It is far more reasonable to not treat electronic cigarettes as if they were regular cigarettes Mm -hmm. and encourage people to switch to a smoke-free product um that that is going to offer more protection to young people living with parents that smoke than demonizing vapor products um and, and regulating them just like cigarettes so um yeah it was good to hear that testimony and there was lots of weird other testimony that was offered um there was a woman that uh basically just you know drank the ucsf kool-aid and talked about the gateway effect as if it's a proven fact um which it's not and the the data doesn't show that and if you read any of the studies coming out of ucsf um i mean i'm kind of surprised that you know if, if UCF SF does studies on like fish, I'm kind of surprised that they don't mention the p- potential gateway between smoke-free products and cigarettes. Um, <laughs> but 
you Water, know, smoke-free products and cigarettes, they're all tied in together somehow. Yeah, like <laughs> if your fish was thinking about cigarettes, then if you eat that fish, vapor products are likely to be a gateway. That's kind <laughs> of like, you know, it that that's the quality of science that they're doing there, you know, when they're talking about young people transitioning. Right. Um, in several of the studies that I've looked at and other, you know, people who are actually qualified have looked at, you look at the data mm -hmm. and you look at the conclusion and they don't match up. It's, yeah, it's no. a, there's a data set there. First of all, can't show that there is, you know, there's no longitudinal data showing transition to combusted tobacco. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you get to the conclusion and there are qualifiers are the very important qualifier. And yep. that is may or might, there is no definitive proof anywhere yeah. in that study no. or the discussion that would would lead anyone to say no, these products definitely are a gateway and you always see them say stuff like we modified for this we modified for that uh, especially if you read a study through to its entirety you'll see that they modified the data sets a bunch of times to get the conclusion they wanted it's yeah. um it's very it's not science that's replicatable therefore it's not science do you know what i mean Th that's the thing you have to be able to like replicate what you've done and yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so you know it, it's uh, you know it's the same tactic of you know let's trot out the children and make this sound um more credible than it actually is and mm -hmm. and and let's let's foment some fear and um you know it, this is you know, ultimately, I think Tobacco 21 isn't going to make that big of a difference, and it's going to keep these groups in business for a while. So, yeah, um, it's a great, the it's goal a great for marketing them. scheme. It's the goal for them. Yeah. So, um, yep, that's Tobacco 21. Um, okay. And uh, people in Oregon, please, please take action over the weekend and send in a bunch of emails. Right. Um, and also plan to show up at the hearing. Um, I believe this one's at three o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. Um, so, you know, a good showing of, of solidarity there would be, would be wonderful. Even if you don't yeah. plan to testify, um, yes. just showing up and, and supporting the people that are, uh, is great. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the pieces of legislation that I have on my list. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm missing something. I am, however, following SB1 in uh, Indiana. I don't have like the live stream of the votes, right. but uh, SB1 in Indiana is apparently moving right along. And um, this, uh, this is good news for Indiana. Right. So uh, I don't have a vote tally for you at this time, but it suffice to say that uh, it, it looks like it's going to pass. Okay. Um, I hate saying that because somebody's going to chime in later and be like, nope, we got screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how is the Tobacco 21 thing going where Margo lives? Um, well, I, I don't know. I would be, um, I, I know that, uh, there are some folks. Oh, wait, did I, did I miss, do I have, am I missing time? <laughs> I know that folks were going to get together, uh, okay. this, the past, uh, in, in the past week or this past weekend. Um, right and uh discuss um what they needed to do and, and get in touch with people i know that i helped right. um I, I 
I think maybe it's this weekend. Um, I, I helped with writing a letter for 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 them to pass out and have people sign and send into city council members. Nice. Um, it, it's still, you know, there's no definite date for when this proposal was going to head to council. So, um, and, and it sounds like they're going to start with an indoor use ban. Um, so it, it, it's good that, that, you know, people like Margot are, are paying attention to local events and are able to, um, you know, get in early and start communicating with, with local lawmakers. So yeah. hopefully that makes a difference. And, um, you know, my, my only update is, is that, uh, uh, the, the local, the local folks are, are, I think, trying to rally some support, nice. um, and uh and hopefully defeat this thing so awesome. um but yeah i'll be keeping in communication with margo and and help out where we can uh you know we have some powerful tools at our disposal so um you know as things progress we'll we'll be there right alongside them um yeah so now on to the more somewhat complicated or ridiculous stuff um Okay, I just got your message. <laughs> okay. um, I uh, yeah, I don't know, but I'll have to check in with Margo and see about what's going on Monday morning. Okay. Um, the uh, so uh, the past few days, you may have seen a press release from um, Malia Cohen, a uh, city supervisor. She's on the board of supervisors in San Francisco. Okay. And um, she is proposing an all out flavor ban in the city. Um, and Gee, of course, great idea. yeah, novel, novel idea. Uh, the, the headline here is that she's even going after menthol, uh, which no one has ever done. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, in, in researching a couple of things, um, you know, people should be reminded that campaign for tobacco free kids actually argued against banning menthol at one point. Yes, um, I believe during, during the stages of the tobacco control act. Yeah. They and, said it would create a black market. I believe was one of their arguments. Wow. Novel uh, observation yes. there. Yes. Um, and they also argued in favor of the 2007 predicate date. Um, which we're, we're dealing with the same kind of situation now in that if, if, if campaign for tobacco free kids is concerned about creating a black market, then they should actually be behind modernizing the predicate date for vapor products. Um, uh, which, you know, obviously they're not because they are, we'll get to that later with the, with New York, but so, um, there are flavor bands popping up all over California. I just heard about a fourth one, uh, this afternoon. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> so th this flavor ban would basically wipe out the vapor industry in, uh, San Francisco and, uh, would only allow the sale of tobacco, regular tobacco flavored stuff. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, being in San Francisco and, and, um, they're a very diverse population and of course the epicenter of, uh, well, actually I think. I think the epicenter of the gay rights movement is at the Stonewall in New York City, but um, uh, San Francisco being very 
very closely associated with the LGBTQ community, um, uh, the LGBT community and uh, the African-American community, uh, Asian-American community, all right. of these groups have disproportionately higher smoking rates um, than uh, the rest of the general population. And of course, all of those groups are very well represented in, in San Francisco. Um, of course, uh, Supervisor Cohen is failing to acknowledge that prohibiting the sale of flavored vapor products or other flavored low-risk smoke-free products um, would actually have the practical effect of harming those populations. So um, <clears throat> this is something that we're, we're keeping very close eye on. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Uh, Got to take a sip of water there. <clears throat> yeah. um, the uh, uh, and uh, Jennifer Berger Coleman, who's on our board of directors, is uh, yes. and and of course she's our our, our community outreach director. Mm -hmm. um, will be um, I think engaging on this on a very personal level. So um, we're we're going to get as involved as we can on on the San Francisco flavor ban. Awesome. Um, awesome. Mostly because you know, generally speaking, you know. And we can start with talking about Tobacco 21. We can start talking about just about any of this, you know, um, legislate non-bullshit legislation. When <laughs> they start trotting out the kids, that's one thing, okay? That's, I think, I, I'm still waiting for a time when we all just kind of become a bit, um, uh, not tone deaf, but uh, when that, when that ploy, you know, stops having such an impact on people. Right. It, it, so that's one thing that's to be expected, but now, mm -hmm. now you're involving other groups and, and these, these folks are not to them. It's a soundbite right. and they're, they're using these people as pawns and they know that they can score political points with it. Mm -hmm. The statistics are there. It supports part of their argument, right. but they're really just, this is so, so premature. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and ultimately I, I, I think they're harming these people. I mean, it, yeah. it's true for, you know, I don't know, average America, you know, that, that misinformation about these products is harmful, but it's especially true. It, it is especially more vital that these vulnerable populations have access to smoking alternatives mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, it really is, it's, it's, it's even more life or death for, right. for these groups. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think we're going to see a lot more about that coming out in the, in the coming weeks and months. So stay, stay well, tuned kids. I mean, honestly, just truthful information about the risks would be huge. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. That's, that's the sad part. You, you're handicapped on all sides with that. Yep. Which is a shame. So, um, moving from the left coast to the east coast, um, New York is going to be a big thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've 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 seen. Bill uh, De Blasio has a that's a real interesting uh, perspective he's got. Yeah, this is, this is, I mean, this is actually very California-esque, um, yes. what they're proposing. Um, 
I think Philadelphia also had a proposal like this. I, I don't know where it is, but um, the uh, New York City Council will be, uh, actually there's a committee that's going to be right. looking at this next week on the 27th. Mm -hmm. um, the, the bill that concerns us is, uh, I guess it's interim number or introduction number. I don't know what the INT stands for, okay. uh, but it's 1532, 1532. Okay. And this is a licensing bill that is specific mm -hmm. to vapor retailers, e-cigarette yep. retailers. Yep. Now, before you get all excited and say, oh, well, it's great. They're, they're creating a separate <laughs> licensing scheme and, and they're not going to consider us tobacco. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> settle, down, settle down, settle <laughs> down because you're already, it's, it's, you're already separated in the city code. E-cigarettes are defined separately from tobacco product. Mm -hmm. So that's already there. And you should be getting angry because this bill caps the licensing yes, in does. New York City. I, I, actually, I know that you might think that that's gonna limit your competition, but what it really means is that within 90 days of passing this ordinance, yeah. if people don't have their license, their application in to get their vapor shop license, mm -hmm. no, they're not gonna get it ever yep. um, until yeah. the law is repealed. Yep. You have 90 days from passage to submit your applications to get a license. And then after that, they're not issuing any more licenses. And, exactly. and you don't get to transfer your license. Okay. So if somebody decides to go out of business, you, you get to go out of business is what you do. You don't get to sell your store. You don't get to sell yeah. your company. Um, I, you, you can bring in, I believe, you know, uh, partners who own a certain percentage of the, the company and they may be able to take over the license, but it's not transferable. You don't get to sell a vape shop license. This is part of an overall strategy to reduce the number of locations that sell tobacco products and vapor products. Yep. So um, yes. it's not just a cap. It's, it's actually See, shut you down. You know, it's really funny. Um, we're talking about this license and about two or three weeks ago, I started noticing these stories where they said New York was oversaturated with tobacco sellers. They started like showing up in the press. I'm going, that's kind of weird. I don't think I've ever seen a study show that before. And then bam, there they are going to cap the vapor retailers. I think they're going to try to cap the tobacco retailers too, which I really Oh yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's a separate that's bill. There's exactly three bills. It. Right. There's, th there's three bills and, and, mm -hmm. and, and the, the tobacco licensing is a separate bill. It's the same right. thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they're already seeding the press with stories to put forward their own narrative. And you can usually see where legislation is going to go if you look at the news ahead of time enough, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's certainly faux outrage. I, I mean, if you've spent, you know, 10 minutes in New York City, then mm -hmm. you know, you know, there's bodegas everywhere and they sell right. cigarettes. I mean, it's <laughs> not. It, it shouldn't be a shock. It's a very densely populated <laughs> area. Of course, right. there's there's grocery stores on you know practically every corner, yeah. or bodegas that sell, you know, stuff. Yeah. And, and yeah. tobacco <laughs> happens to be one of those things. It's just, yeah. it, it it's you know there's there, there, 
I mean, maybe for, you know, as an economics person, somebody will say, well, no, actually there aren't, you know, it's, it, uh, New York City isn't saturated with Starbucks, but, right. you know, it's New York City. There are Starbucks across the street from each other from in New York City. Yes. <laughs> because yep. if you've ever tried to cross the street in Manhattan, it can be kind of a pain in the ass. So right. why not just stick to your side of the street? <laughs> yep. Stage advice, Bill de Blasio. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's going to be the big thing in new york um right. it is it is outrageous mm -hmm. and um you know casa and others i'm sure we'll we will be making that argument that awesome. um you're essentially protecting cigarette sales um yeah. oh and also uh the the, the i mean you know <laughs> what's just completely mind-blowing is that um so it's it's a pretty well-established fact fact that um over half the cigarette sales in the state of New York and certainly in New York City are right. are, are they they happen on the black market. Sure. Um, because uh, in case you've been living under a rock for the past five years, <laughs> the cost of a pack of cigarettes in New York City is, I believe, already the highest in the country. That's over um, ten dollars, isn't it? The the floor the the price floor the minimum price for a pack of cigarettes in New York City is ten dollars. Good God. Yeah, um, and then you know obviously the you know you got to keep the lights on and there's there's yeah. other yeah there's stuff so it's I mean, it's not uncommon to find a twelve thirteen dollar pack of cigarettes in New York City. I ran out of cigarettes one night when I lived in Bushwick and I had to walk down to the CVS when they mm -hmm. still sold cigarettes and it, right. it was twelve dollars a pack. Oh, and that was God. that was six years ago. So, That's you know, crazy. Um, yeah. so now the minimum price is going to be raised to thirteen dollars because apparently the black market in New York City isn't big enough. Well, we um, want to see the laugh for curve in action. I, I I guess they need to see it more in action. <laughs> I mean, well, they're going to be on par with Australia. What is it? Almost twenty five dollars for a pack of cigarettes there now. OK, well, Australia is yeah. in case again in case you've been living in a, under a rock forever and mm -hmm. are just geographically unaware it's um, an island uh, it's australia really hard is to get an to. island <laughs> yes. yes an island so it's really hard to get to and they they have a counterfeit tobacco problem yeah well we have rate. i'm not sure i i know that donald trump is not aware of this but i, I know that <laughs> there are a lot of people out there that are unfamiliar with modes of transportation such as boats and airplanes um so yes that does happen in australia even yeah. though it is an island but it being an island mm -hmm. extreme lifestyle control type policies um actually are a bit more effective in places like that but still boats and airplanes yes. um so yeah it's uh manhattan is itself an, an island right um but it's so close to new jersey i mean yeah. you know it's, it's like a two dollars and well for a five dollar <laughs> trip on the path you know mm -hmm. you can you can come across the river and get your cigarettes um and and i encourage everyone in manhattan to buy your cigarettes in new jersey um just because <laughs> that the tax revenue shouldn't go to the city and they're still yeah. making money off the taxes so right. enjoy that um <laughs> so yeah new york city um and while while we're in the new york the millionaire's paradise um <laughs> 
the New York Times editorial board oh god that put out a, a bit of a screed um this screed. week screed. um and have really said some very stupid things um <laughs> yes i i have submitted my own letter to the editor not i, I <laughs> not really all that confident that it's going to get published um but i i will refrain from going into too much detail for uh because if you know your letters have to be exclusive to the new york times so um if there is a chance of that being published i should hopefully find out in the next what by middle of next week right um, i don't want to torpedo that opportunity to reach the readers of the new york times but there are some glaring inaccuracies with what they have said here and probably probably one of the, one of the things that's just popping to to my mind is um you know this this whole bullshit i'm just going to go back to bullshit okay. this bullshit about undermining the fda's authority yes this is and and I'll and I'll go back. I'm gonna I'm gonna get tin foil hat on everybody here, and I think it's. I, oh I yeah, think you're I'm, not at the wrong show for that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I, I think I'm actually kind of right about this. So, okay. <clears throat> this weekend, mm -hmm. you know, we're we're gonna find out what's this weekend or early next week. We're gonna find out whether or not the Cole Bishop amendment is in the budget bill. Okay. Um, the vote is coming up. Right. Sorry, another sip of water. Um, okay. We're either going to have a budget or we're going to get a continuing resolution for four to seven days. Okay. That being the case, it's sort of crunch time. And so all of the opponents to tobacco harm reduction mm -hmm. have really been ramping it up. And I believe that this New York Times editorial is part of that coordinated plan. Um, I believe that the editorial board was lobbied by um, people from Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids et al. Mm -hmm. And uh, they published this ridiculous opinion piece. Um, okay. And, nice. and I, would, I would like to clarify that, and, and I think that we have made this statement before, so this is not... Um, this is not new. Right. Um, one of the things that they say in here is that if, let's see, if the predicate date is changed, I'm mm -hmm. summarizing. Okay. If the predicate date is changed, then vapor companies will be able to market and sell their products to children. <laughs> no. I want to no. find the I want to find the quote because it really does sound that stupid. Okay, well, I mean, and I read it and I was just angry. It just it made me angry. I mean, it's kind of funny because I can remember, and this might have no bearing on anything at all. You look for that quote and I'll tell my story. Mm -hmm. I can remember when Kevin was trying to start up the APA right before Greg Connolly had come on board. And he had got a bunch of people to sign on and they were going to try to get good press. So they went to a couple of different 
not ad agencies so much, but I, I guess like ad agencies. And they all turn them down because they all get money from the government to um, fight against tobacco and from like the campaign for tobacco-free kids to fight against it. So, I mean, there's a lot of money being poured into that sort of thing. And the government is essentially, we, we know this too, paying towns and cities with all these grants to do this kind of thing. They're paying the activists, the quote-unquote activists, to do this stuff. So it's not unreasonable to think that these people don't have money to throw around. And I'm not saying that that's for sure what happened or that's what influenced the gray lady, but, um, you know, you've got to go with where the advertising dollars are. We don't really have the money to fight this. You know, we're just the little guy. It, it's kind of how it's always been. So I found the quote. Okay. And the reason it took me so long is because it's in the first paragraph. <laughs> okay. And I want to I want to read the first paragraph to everybody in case you haven't read it, um, because this is really the source of of a lot of the inaccuracies. So, as smokers turn to electronic cigarettes to reduce the health risks of smoking, big tobacco companies started buying e-cigarette makers and producing and selling their own. Now those companies are lobbying Congress to prevent the Food and Drug Administration from regulating electronic cigarettes and cigars as it does conventional cigarettes. If they succeed, they will be able to sell and market addictive nicotine products to young people with few restrictions. <sighs> I, want, I want everybody to understand the law of the land is you can't sell vapor products or tobacco products to anyone under the age of 18. Well, yeah, but and here's not, what... not only that, not only that, if you completely scrapped the FDA deeming rule, mm -hmm. 48 states prohibit the sale of these products to minors. And I think okay. Pennsylvania may have updated their, their code. Okay. Leaving so... Michigan as the only state that doesn't prohibit, prohibit sales to minors. Okay. You can well... Thank the American Heart Association for that. Okay. Well, um, again, I, I was going to make a point and um, now I kind of almost forgot what it was, but um, Sorry. Th this is, this is kind of what they do. Tobacco control. Have you ever seen how they break down the ages? I think we've talked about this before, but this is going to be interesting information if no one's ever heard it before. Break so, down the ages. Break down the ages for when they're doing their surveys and stuff for tobacco like for tobacco use and stuff for the kids in school, you know, how they have them take the, the tobacco, the um, substance abuse surveys. Okay. Okay. So they break it down. It's like um, ages three to five, five to seven, seven to nine, um, 10 to 13. And then like, it goes from this amazing jump from 13 to 17 and then like 17 to 22. Those are still considered youths to tobacco control. So they can make that statement to youths um, without it being uh, completely inaccurate because that's how they group everything. But that's not technically correct because a minor is 18 years of age. I mean, under 18, correct? Generally speaking. Yeah. I, when, when, when I see the term young people, I think yeah. under the age of 18. 
when well, I see I, the term young adults, uh-huh. I actually think of between the ages of 16 and 18. Okay, well, um, you and the rest of the public thinks like that. That's not how tobacco control thinks. So they can say, well, this is how, what our surveys show. And if you never look at the age group breakdown, you'll never know. You know what I mean? So it gives people the impression that they're actually selling and marketing tobacco to like 14, 15 year old kids when in reality they aren't, which is a shame because I I think more, if more people knew that they would be less swayed by the arguments. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I read this and I, to me, this is just a bald lie and, Mm -hmm. and I, I, I can't, um, no, no, it, it's, it is, it's just, it it's, is, unc- it, it's, 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 uh, it is a lot. It, it's just, it's, it's, it's horrendous, you know, that the New York Times thinks they can get away with this and they can, um, because again, that you trot out the children and everybody just sort of goes, oh, yeah, we got to save the kids. Um, <laughs> so even if it's at the expense of their parents. Um, so, um, so yeah, and, and, you know, they go on to set this stage of, of, you know, really misrepresenting the the stakeholders in this fight um they have they have reduced this fight to um a a battle between big business and public health and Mm -hmm. um and that's just wildly inaccurate Um, and so several several people have have spoken out about this i know that sally satel wrote a piece um i believe in forbes um uh there was an article i think in I'm pretty sure the Daily Caller and the Washington Examiner put something out. Um, right. There there've been there've been a handful of of responses to this um editorial from the New York Times. So awesome. um and I am sort of holding back. I have a, a rather long open letter that I think we'll be putting out, uh, but I want to see if 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 the editor decides to publish my my very short email right and if you don't hear anything within a week i mean you could always put it up on the website i guess oh yeah no that's what that's what the plan is (laughs) excellent Excellent. yeah so So, that's new york um we can sorry for the aside no no it's 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 all relevant and you know it's it's still um yeah so Mm -hmm. um the next things to be on the lookout for okay. are, uh, I'm sure that people have seen the uh, reg watch video floating around announcing that Duncan Hunter's bill is um, fully formed and ready to be introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that uh, there perhaps obviously i've been kind of buried with stuff this week but uh there are perhaps some more feedback that we need to offer um but uh it it sounds like the plan is to introduce this thing next week um okay i i want to it's very important that i preface this by saying the concept here the idea that this bill addresses is something that we are all supportive of we all firmly believe that vapor products should be receiving a, a, their own. They should be devi- defined separately from tobacco products. Sure. Um, they should be regulated separately from tobacco products. Exactly. No one disagrees with that. But there are some some nuances and some 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 
details, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that I think need to continue to be worked out. And I think, I think most people behind this effort understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we need to kind of reemphasize this for the community, for people that are going to hear about this okay. and say, this is the thing that's going to save us. Okay. I, I think, you know, we all need to make a, a coordinated and thoughtful effort to kind of tamp down that enthusiasm a bit, not to lose sight of some of the other options that are a bit more attainable. Um, and, you know, this is, this bill is, I, I, I agree with the sentiment that you've got to start somewhere. Um, I, I think that, you know, introducing this soon, I can see, I, I absolutely think it's appropriate to get this going this year mm-hmm. is, is a good idea. Um, right. But introducing this bill next week cannot distract from support for HR 1136, support for the Cole Bishop Amendment, which we may sure. or may not find out about the next few days, um, and um, some of the other uh, administrative options that we may have in terms right. of, you know, talking to Secretary Tom Price and urging him to delay implementation. Mm-hmm. Delaying implementation of the, the, the regulations is still absolutely necessary mm-hmm. um, for the simple yes. fact that what Duncan Hunter is proposing may take longer than two years to get through Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, it is, imperative that we get some sort of relief this year Um, otherwise you know all the big manufacturers that we rely on um, are going to be closing up their shops so um, but uh, again so we can we can look forward to the hunter bill coming out either next week or soon Um, and uh, and I, i i also want to make it clear that um CASA has been offering input on this bill, um, but I am, I'm not, you know, we're not coming out and basically signing on as a co-sponsor yet. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, we reserve our right to put our full support behind something, uh, certainly when it's appropriate and when it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now we're focused on, on two other things, and I don't want to... Um, I don't want to distract from those efforts. Right. And that would stretch us really thin too. So. It might, it might. Yeah, um, so. But, uh, but also, you know, uh, I, the, the, the spirit here is that there are many irons in the fire mm-hmm. and uh, I think that we can support some things equally. It's just right now for the next week, mm-hmm. the focus has got to be on changing the predicate date. That's what we have. That is what's most likely to succeed. Um, and, and that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that, that instills some confidence in, Mm -hmm. in the industry so that they can stick around. Um, it's, uh, it's very important. So, um, that is the Duncan Hunter vaping bill. Uh, it has actually a title, um, and the title of the bill. Is the Cigarette Smoking Reduction and Electronic Vapor Alternatives Act of 2017. 
Okay. So be on the lookout for that. Okay. Um, the other thing that's very interesting that, uh -huh. um, and uh, this is another one of those things where I'm not gonna weigh in yay or nay at the moment. Okay. Um, I am actually kind of curious to find out more about this strategy, but um, folks may have heard about a strategy involving Heartland Wisconsin and coordination. Mm -hmm. um, this is a section, a clause, a, I'm not exactly sure what it is. Um, and I, I briefly went through um, the, uh, what is it, the National Environmental, Environmental Policy Act of mm -hmm. 1976, mm -hmm. 1970, there's a couple different dates. Um, right. And uh, tried to hunt for something that kind of jumped out and screamed, oh yeah, this will work. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, it's called coordination. And mm -hmm. uh, this has been used in environmental policy, land right. management, um, and, and other stuff that is actually relevant to coordinating with local agencies. Sure. Um, and it, it has been used successfully to overturn some federal regulation. Mm -hmm. um, but it has never been used for the FDA. Uh, and that there, it, it, it's a very interesting argument that, um, that an agency like the FDA would be required to coordinate with small town America before <laughs> passing something like the tobacco deeming rule. Um, right. So I, I've heard um, somewhat of both sides of this mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm interested to hear more. Um, but uh, I, I don't want to, I think that people should be approaching this with measured expectations. Um, this is not, I, I don't see this as being a slam dunk. And um, like I said, I've, I've heard some well, incredible I mean, arguments against it, this as an actual sure, pathway I mean, to success. Sure, but it's, it's something to look at. You know, whether or not it's viable, you don't know. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. And, and you know, at this point, uh, you know, we're sort of open to all options. Mm -hmm. um, and um, but uh, I, I think if, if I if I could offer anything, it is a bit of a word of caution to anybody out there and that, um, you know, we don't really have all the all the information on this sure. um, in, in order to make a decision as to whether or not people should be putting their full weight of support behind this. Okay. So um, there is a, the hearing, mm -hmm. the, the, the way that this works is that the, um, the local council, the local uh, uh, lawmaking body, city council, whatever, right. they begin by having a hearing and, and declaring that they're going to invoke this coordination law right. um, in, in whatever, in regards to whatever piece of federal regulation uh okay. and so that begins this week in heartland wisconsin okay uh on the 27th okay what is that a thursday uh, yeah, this thursday yeah. this mm -hmm. coming thursday and i don't know i don't know what the capabilities are of the heartland wisconsin city council um in terms of streaming that live but uh anyway um it's 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 an interesting proposal and and i'll 
certain to follow that and hopefully have yeah. some sort of substantive update next Friday. Awesome. <sighs> so is that it for this evening, Alex, you think? I think so. I think I just made myself sad. <laughs> well, I don't think you should ever be sad because do you know how long I looked at the Tenth Amendment and said if they go nuclear with the regulations, if we could get city councils and town councils to adopt a Tenth Amendment, because I've thought about it, you know, what happens if, then you have to go local, right? This is just one option. Tenth Amendment is another option. There are actually more options at a local level than there are at a federal level. So uh, I think it's good to keep an open mind and think about all of them. So I, I don't think you should be sad. I think anything that stops government overreach, at least in this instance, is a good thing. Yeah, I just don't know um, how much you know, something applied to the EPA actually works for the FDA. Um, well, I mean, it is a bit different. I mean, you also have to consider, you know, one of the points that, that was brought up in a side conversation was that, um, you know, if something like this did work, what other FDA regulations will have to go through this process? What, what will this mean for approving drugs? What will this, well, what will this yeah. mean for food standards? Mm -hmm. Is, is the FDA going to have to coordinate with, with, towns with a population of 5,000 in order to get, uh, you know, a potentially life-saving cancer treatment passed and, and how many decades will it take to get that through? So yeah. there's, there's some, there's some kind of, um, collateral damage that could happen if this actually think, is feasible. I think there's a whole lot of collateral damage that could happen. There was a lot of collateral damage that was going to happen when, now president trump was on the campaign trail and said he wanted to defund these agencies oh yeah the yeah. fda and the epa so i mean collateral damage was going to happen either way i think yeah just it's just the political ship we're sailing on right now so yeah. um you know um nothing to get uh, upset about them options it's it's yeah. another option Options, learning, these are things that are great. And, um, yes, I and agree. I'm all for it. So <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm open. I will say before I go, and mm -hmm. I know that we've gone way long, um, I did just get a message um, from John Dietz in Pennsylvania that okay. the Bartolotta bill will be heard mm -hmm. in the Finance Committee. I assume that's the Senate Finance Committee nice. um, next week. So this that's is. Awesome. Uh, this is vapor tax reform in Pennsylvania, um, reducing the tax to five cents per milliliter. Excellent. And, um, and that's, uh, that's necessary. So, uh, hopefully we'll be putting out an update about that soon. And, that's um, awesome. and yeah, awesome. so now I'm happy again. <laughs> okay. That's good. All right. So yeah. Uh, thank you for all you do for us, Alex. And we'll see you again next Friday. I got it awesome. right this time. I didn't say Monday. I did good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can catch CASA updates on CASA's website at CASA.org. You can get CASA updates at SoundCloud. You can also get CASA updates by going to iTunes and looking for CASA.org and importing that into your podcast feeds. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Hello, ladies and gentlemen.
How are you today? Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm good. I, I got a predator this week, and I haven't had any urges to go out and hunt down any any alien owners and kill them. So that's good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Although this, yeah, I did try and watch the FDA CTP stuff on batteries. Oh, good. But considering they're talking about technology, I'd have to say their webcasting is shockingly bad. the The video appeared to be in like 120p or thereabouts, <laughs> maybe 240 at a stretch. And the sound was cutting in and out the whole time. Well, I mean, at least it's better than... When they first came out, it was kind of... Um, it was almost cartoonish. It was very Mr. Rogers-ish when they had the very first like um, e-cigarette update things. They were pretty bad. It's nice to know we're spending all that money and the quality hasn't improved. It's really nice. Yeah, I mean, literally, somebody in the audience could have done a better broadcast on their mobile phone using Periscope. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Oh, but, no, they know, would have. <laughs> I'm just saying, you, you can't uh, you can't make money on Periscope, very. Yeah. Well, you know well they can't make money using the this particular, these particular, this particular meeting. They used the Adobe. Uh, meeting okay. platform, which is yeah. way out of date. Uh, I think it's been updated in something like five years. So that's excellent. That's, yeah. that's good. <laughs> but they still charge yeah. you several hundred dollars, of course, for using it. So yeah. oh yeah, we'll charge you several hundred dollars, and we'll keep your system vulnerable, and we won't update things. Yeah, perfect. That's perfect. That's perfect. But uh, that is the government for you. <laughs> so um, I tried to follow that. I mean, there are some good things being said. Uh, some things I agree with. Uh, mm -hmm. I only really caught the second day, right. and and eventually had to stop watching because it was <laughs> the quality was that bad. Literally, I mean, it'd have been fine not having good video if you could have heard what was being said. But no. when every fifth, sixth word is going missing, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was like an episode of bad lip reading you know minus the fun yeah that seems about right for a government body although they, okay. they did have they had a guy from um black and decker talking about how to construct good battery packs and chargers which was nice uh, oh, that's i hope the e-cig companies were listening to that uh although i wouldn't exactly say black and decker are brilliant at it either uh and there's yeah. the, oh, I can't remember. It was one of the universities. Okay. Um, one of your tech universities had one of their chemical scientists there basically explaining battery chemistry. Well, so there's a lot of good information, but... If you could hear it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a matter of hearing it so you can use it, and that is not exactly how I, I believe goes. vapors were present, funnily enough. Uh, whether they got to say very much, I don't know, but... Probably not. But yeah, funnily enough, all the battery experts were horrified at people wandering about with loose batteries in their pockets, same as we are. So yeah. Well, you're not supposed to. I mean, yeah. why the government isn't telling people put your batteries in a case, you know. Just not, oh, sorry. The, the fire the fire service in the UK is telling people don't carry loose batteries in your pocket. Well, <laughs> I mean, duh. <laughs> I mean, most of us know that. But we oh, uh, the... the was it the FDA or was it the CDC came out with our little um, meme 
extra little info article this last week, was it? So, yeah, if you're going to have a, use an e-cig, remember to cover your keep, tank. Keep your, keep it yeah, keep safe. your tank covered. Yeah. Okay, but the tank is, okay. <laughs> yeah, they really you don't understand technology, do they? You, you definitely should keep your tank covered and safe, um, only because most of them are glass. Uh, okay, so they don't want you to get a cut. Makes sense. No, the, the, the way they worded it, they seemed to think this would stop battery explosions <laughs> and, and everything else. Yeah, no, I, I saw some of that and it was just so ridiculous. I was yeah. like, this is this is on uh, this is on a whole nother level. This is on. Uh, yeah, I'm amazed whoever came up with it was you know savvy enough to actually use the software to produce the images. <laughs> well, yes, that's the government for you. Which is, it's kind of why everybody who thinks the government is omnipotent, it's hard to believe that. Um, Because you just see how bad they fail. But uh, I I do definitely think there's a government we see and a government we don't see. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm changing mine again, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you are. So tonight we're going to talk about stingrays. I know you're shocked. I mean, that's the only topic tonight. Last week we did a one-topic show. I thought it went really well. Do you see anything you want to pick, or do you want to start with the Canada trifecta? Oh, start with the the Canucks. Yeah. Okay. So. Do do you want the music? Yes, I do. Canada's got a problem, (laughs) y'all. Here we go. Stand by for action. We are about to launch Stingray. Anything can happen in the next half hour. so long since we've heard the extended mix of that i kind of missed it <clears throat> yeah it's kind of yeah it, it's got a good beat <laughs> <laughs> i like it i mean, I, I know stingrays are pretty boring but not really especially not when you don't understand where they're coming from or why and when <laughs> basically you're kind of dealing with your government doing something that you've never seen them do before for absolutely no discernible reason. <sighs> so, 
Someone is spying on cell phones in the nation's capital. This is from CBC in Canada. A CBC Radio Canada investigation found that cell phone trackers at work near Parliament Hill and embassies. Shocker. A month-long CBC News Radio Canada investigation has revealed that someone is using devices that track and spy on cell phones in the area around Parliament Hill. The devices, known as IMS eye catchers, <laughs> have been used by Canadian police and security authorities, foreign intelligence, and even organized crime. The devices, sometimes known by the brand name of one model, Stingray, work by mimicking a cell phone tower to interact with nearby phones. Read the unique ID associated with the phone, the IMSI, or the, you know, the IMSI identity number. Okay. That number can then be used to track the phone and by extension, the phone's user. In some instances, IMSI catchers can even be used to gain access to a person's text messages and listening in on calls. Um, to do the investigation, journalists use a device that detects IMSI catchers created by the German company GSMK. Well, it looks like a regular cell phone. The crypto phone emits an alert when a fake cell phone antenna intercepts its signal. Uh, media in the United States, Norway, and Australia have done similar tests, but this is the first time it's been used by a media outlet in Canada. During tests in December and January, the crypto phone set off alerts at locations around Parliament Hill, including nearby Baywood, Baywood Market, Reduce Shopping Center Mall, and the CDC offices. That's kind of terrifying. Because IMSI catchers have a radius of about half a kilometer in an urban setting, the IMSI catchers the CBC detected could reach territory including Parliament Hill, the Prime Minister's office in Levern Block, National Defense Headquarters, as well as the U.S. and Israeli embassies. We then used even more sophisticated equipment called Overwatch Sensor that confirmed the presence of an IMSI catcher close to Parliament Hill. We wanted to know more about who might be using the IMSI catchers that we detected, so we asked the U.S. supplier of CryptoPhone to analyze the alerts we're getting. ESD America specializes in counterintelligence, and its clients include U.S. Homeland Security. Consistently, you've been seeing IMSI catcher activity, activity definitely, said CEO and co-founder Les Goldsmith when we took our results to the company in Las Vegas. We described the parts of the city in which we detected IMSI catchers full of politicians, political staffers, and civil servants. Somebody could be listening to calls right now, and the phone owners have no idea, he said. As for who might be behind it, Goldsmith says the IMSI catchers are used by law enforcement, federal agencies, as well as organized crime and foreign intelligence. Based on the configurations suggested by CBC results, he believes the IMSI catchers detected in Ottawa could be foreign-made. We're seeing more IMSI catchers with different configurations, and we can build signature. So we're seeing IMSI catchers that are more likely Chinese, Russian, Israeli, and so forth, he said. We also showed our results to an expert in Canadian security. He knows a lot about IMSI catchers and comes from a Canadian security agency. He agreed to conceal his identity in order not to jeopardize that security work. The experts found the results of our investigation disturbing. That an MP or a person who works on Parliament Hill could be exposed, that they could be a victim of this type of attack, it undermines our sovereignty, he said. Based on his experience, he sees two very different potential explanations for the results, one domestic, the other foreign. He said Russians had, Russia has used IMSI catchers in Canada before. We learned that Russian intelligence was parked near CSIS with equipment on board to do IMSI catching. After X number of days or weeks, they're capable of identifying the IMSI numbers that belong to intelligence officers because the phones were spending eight hours a day in the same spot. He said when the, Rus when the Russians would do the next 
clandestine operation, they would use an IMS ICAP to receive any of the numbers associated with Canadian intelligence were nearby. If they were, they would call off the operation. The Russian embassy rejects any allegation that Russians have used IMS eye-catchers in Ottawa. Any suggestions as to that kind of activities are bogus and baseless, said an embassy spokesperson. A representative from the Chinese embassy told us not only was it unreasonable, but irresponsible to suggest that, that country would be involved in that activity. Israel said it had no knowledge of the issue, and the United States declined to comment. Our security experts suggested the IMS eye-catchers we saw might be the work of a domestic agency, like Canadian, Canadians, Canada's Electronic Spy Agency, the Communication Security Establishment. One possibility is the Communication Security Establishment has been mandated to monitor the network for protection purposes in a defensive way, he said. CSC says it's not allowed to do that. To be clear by law, CSC is not permitted to direct its activities at Canadians anywhere or anyone in Canada, a spokesperson said in a statement adding that CSC respects the law. Last June, it was revealed the RCMP uses IMS eye-catchers in its work. A Quebec Superior Court lifted a publication ban to reveal police were using the technology as part of an investigation into a 2011 death of Salvatore Montaigne, a high-ranking member of the New York crime family killed outside Montreal. Court documents showed the RPM RCMP purchased the first IMS eye-catcher in 2005, has used IMS eye-catchers in numerous investigations, keeps investigations about information about the self-employed ordinary Americans detected in the course of some investigations, recognizes that phones may be affected while using an IMS eye-catcher, including possible delays in reaching 911. The documents also show that the RCMP obtained code authority to use the IMS eye-catcher, which the RCMP refers to as a mobile device interceptor, or MDI. Recent court proceedings may also shed light on the degree to which police are reluctant to discuss their use of the devices. Last month, lawyers for the federal government issued stays of proceedings against three dozen suspects out of the nearly 50 people rounded up in an operation targeting the Montreal Mafia. A Crown prosecutor told reporters one of the reasons was that evidence gathered by the RCMP raised unprecedented legal questions but declined to say more. Some privacy experts believe the Crown is concerned about whether the use of IMS eye-catchers, including debates about how the data is collected, will hold up in court. Municipal police forces use the technology as well. Vancouver police have acknowledged they borrowed an RCMP IMS eye-catcher in 2007 and said they would use the technology again. CBC News obtained documents showing that in 2016, Winnipeg Police, Durham Regional Police, Ontario Provincial Police, and the Canadian Security Intelligence Service had also got a license from the federal public safety officials to purchase an IMS eye-catcher. Surprising, huh? Shocking. I'm totally shocked. Harry? Yeah. <laughs> totally shocking. Well, I mean, I imagine it's totally shocking for these people. They don't hear about this stuff all the time. No. I mean... Um, I will say in, in show chat, I have dropped in the particular android app uh, yes yeah yeah since we're covering stingrays yeah. you know i thought people yeah. might want to see the software that helps you detect them uh yeah no it, it's a very useful app i wouldn't necessarily get it from i will play. warn people if you install it it will go bonkers every time you change cell yeah it'll oh, start yeah. picking up all the different cell towers Yes, um, my, my phone goes bonkers for two reasons. One, it's got this yeah. on it. Uh, and two, I've got another one that uh, highlights um, Wi-Fi mm -hmm. uh, that have dodgy connections. Yeah. 
So, yeah, my phone goes mental whenever I go anywhere. Um, we have we have a few of them in our town. Um, and I know because not only will the detector go off, but my phone drops immediately to 3G and I can see it. Yeah. And I'm going, I don't know what you think you're getting from my phone. You're probably getting texts like, remind me to pick up milk. Or I'll be leaving at 2 o'clock. Or... I saw the power trucks going down the street. I guess the power's out. You know, that's the kind of interesting stuff you're getting from me. Yeah, um, well, I mean, yeah, if they looked at phone calls and, and texts on my phone, they'd be really disappointed. <laughs> Since I only use my phone for that maybe a few times a year. Um, I, I text every day on my phone, but I don't use my phone as a phone. You know, yeah. I text, I listen to podcasts. That's what I do. That's all yeah, mine's more. mainly a music player and GPS system. Mine kind of keeps time. It keeps the time. I listen to podcasts and then I text. There's really nothing else on my phone. Talk about bored people. Um, yeah. So, as if that wasn't fun enough, who was using IMSI catchers in Ottawa? Here we go. We reached out to police, security agencies, embassies, and the federal government to ask if they were involved in the IMSI catchers we detected. The Department of National Defense said it had no knowledge of IMSI catchers being used on the dates we saw activity. Department of Public Safety, the Ottawa Police Service, the RCMP, and CISIS all gave similar responses. They won't discuss specific investigative techniques, but they do follow the law, respect the Charter of Rights, Freedoms, and to the appropriate judicial processes. The detection of the devices is troubling to Teresa Scara, um, Scasa, Canadian Research Chair in Information Law at the University of Ottawa. Even if the technology is being used by public authorities, Scasa sees reason to be concerned. She points to a lack of transparency if Canadians are only learning in 2017 that the RCMP has had an IMSI catcher since 2005. Justice is not clear whether authorities always get a warrant. Even when they do, there are still questions about what happens to the information of other people caught up in the investigation, Skaza said. Is it destroyed? Is it retained? Is it used for other purposes? It's not always clear that warrants contain conditions that require something specific to be done with the information afterwards. Given that many groups have access to IMSI catches, catchers, Skaza agrees that there is more, a lot more, the government could be doing to protect Canadians' privacy. She believes the agencies that use IMSI catchers should be required to get a warrant wherever the devices are used, destroy the information that is intercepted but not related to the investigation, and to report to the Privacy Commissioner about how some key pieces of information, like how often they are used and in what, in what context. Well, that would be ideal, wouldn't it? It's kind of what everybody wants if they're going to do that sort of thing. Yeah. But as for whether it'll happen, yeah, I don't know. Okay. So um, from there, we're going to go to an airport in Montreal. And what do you think we find there? <laughs> uh, snow. Sure. Devices that track spy on cell phones found at Montreal's Trudeau Airport. If you were recently at Montreal's Trudeau International Airport, Someone may have been spying on your cell phone. A Radio Canada reporter detected the presence of an electronic surveillance device known as an IMSI catcher on February 21st while waiting for a U.S.-bound flight. 
revelation comes after a joint CBC slash Radio Canada investigation earlier this week found electronic surveillance IMSI catchers have been used in the area near Parliament Hill in Ottawa. The devices, okay, we know about stingrays and we know that they've been used by Canadian police and security authorities, foreign intelligence, and even organized crime. Okay, at Trudeau Airport, Radio Canada detected the catcher's presence through the use of a crypto phone, a cell phone lookalike that emails emits red alerts when a fake impound tries to catch its signal. Several red alerts were received throughout the afternoon and early evening in a section of the airport for U.S. departures. ESD America, the U.S. supplier of crypto phone, which specializes in counterintelligence, analyzed the alerts. The IMSI catcher that you were connected to was tracking the phone, but almost likely had the ability to listen to calls, said Les Goldsmith, CEO of Las Vegas-based ESD America. Goldsmith added that the specific model of IMSI catcher could probably listen to calls in real time. The alerts recorded by the crypto phone at the airport indicate, among other things, that the system that allows the phone to encrypt conversations had been disabled. When asked who could possess that kind of equipment, Goldsmith told Radio Canada, your government or any other government. Goldsmith also said that if the data on our phones were intercepted that day by an IMSI catcher at the airport, the same goes for all other mobile phones in the vicinity. IMSI catchers can cover half a kilometer in urban areas and a two kilometer radius in open spaces. Another security expert who comes from a federal agency and whose identity has Radio Canada has agreed to protect believes that various organizations could have deployed them. The Montreal police cover Trudeau Airport, the RCMP, and CSIS are also there, he said. If you're trying to identify the presence of a targeted individual, it's plausible to do it with the equipment in a specific place like the Montreal Airport. Those customs officers also have a fair presence at the airport. It would not surprise me at all they, too, have deployed something like that. Who is spying at Trudeau Airport? Radio Canada cannot uncover who deployed the IMSI catcher to Trudeau Airport. Police and intelligence agencies refused to talk about their investigative techniques. However, Quebec's provincial police... Wow. Sûreté du Quebec? Sûreté du Quebec. Yeah. Sure. French. Thank you. Said that it does not have an IMSI interceptor, but it refused to say whether it uses an interceptor of other police forces. The U.S. Embassy refused to comment. Meanwhile, Aeroports de Montreal, the corporation that runs the airport, said it does not use an IMSI catcher. Radio Canada got the same response from Transport Canada. The federal department added that we do not know which organization, if any, would have used an IMSI catcher. Shocking. Shocking, shocking. See, I, I know what's going on here. It's, it's, okay. it's plain in that article. U.S. customs officer have a, have a fair presence in the area, and they're bored, and they're just using thing race. <laughs> Listen to calls. I mean, heaven forfend they actually find, you know, guns going onto planes. Uh, <laughs> hi, Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a story you need to cover in future. <clears throat> You know, I, I wanted to talk about North Korea and California. Yes. Yeah. They really do want to do us a favor. You know, they want to make the United States a little bit shorter. <laughs> you know, they want to give the Hollywood moguls their own island to make, you know, movies on and, and live on. And, you know, it will solve their water shortage. Of course, they'll be bombed to 
bits, but that, of course, would require North Korea to get a bomb that actually stayed in the air for long enough. Anyway, I did want to talk anyway, about... Anyway, but yeah, back to Montreal Airport. Yeah. Uh, who's spying at Trudeau Airport? Uh, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's bored, so they're all spying on everybody else. Yeah. So this is from Tector. Tector is, again, my favorite blog on just technology news and stuff. So in case you were wondering, Canada's National Police Force officially confirms ownership use of Stingray devices. From the If It Weren't For Those Meddling Journalists Department. Just days after the Montreal prosecutors cut loose 35 suspected mafia members rather than disclose details of a Stingray device used by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP is admitting that, yes, it does use Stingrays. It's not like it's not known that the RCMP owns Stingrays. It has for nearly a decade now. It's just that it would rather not discuss it in court or in public or in public records responses. The official revelation occurred in Ontario, and it didn't come as the result of a multitude of alleged criminals being released back into the general population. Instead, the unwelcome discussion of RCMP's cell tower spoofers was prompted by a CBC investigation into specific suspicious signals and apparent cell phone tracking around the nation's capital. The RCMP, for the first time, is publicly confirming it uses cell phone surveillance devices in its investigations across Canada, but at the same time says the potential of unauthorized snooping in Ottawa, as reported by CBC News, poses a threat to national security. Absolutely, RCMP Chief Police Chief Jeff Adams, who was in charge of the Technical Investigation Services, said in an unprecedented technical briefing Wednesday with reporters from CBC News, the Toronto Star, and the Globe and Mail. The RCMP held the briefing in the wake of a CBC News investigation that found evidence that devices known as IMSI catchers may be in use near government buildings in Ottawa for the purpose of illegal spying. The RCMP superintendent was quick to point out that it was the agency's stingrays the journalists discovered. There was nothing illegal about the spying, but he can't be sure there aren't others out there with the same equipment doing the same sort of things the RCMP does but without judicial permission. It has decided to join the news agency's investigation of the suspicious signals, which sounds a whole lot like the old joke about heroin addicts. What's the difference between a thief and a junkie? A thief will just steal your monkey money. A junkie will help you look for it. The RCMP let the public in on a few of its stingray secrets during the press briefing. It owns 10 devices and claims that all but one deployment in 2016 had been accompanied by a warrant. Much like those in use in the U.S., the Stingray software only allows for the interception of phone numbers um, and device location, even though they can be retrofitted to intercept calls and communication. Discussion of earlier use showed the warrant wasn't always a requirement. Police used to apply for a general warrant to use the technology. In 2015, Adam said there was a period of at least six months between March and October when the RCMP didn't seek a warrant at all, acting on advice from the Department of Justice and government prosecutors. The use of the term general warrant suggests those signing off on warrant requests were likely not aware of the devices being deployed to perform the search. Law enforcement agencies have been hiding the existence of cell tower spoofers for years, starting with the judges approving their warrants and subpoenas. In the U.S., the FBI's own stingray best practices instructed law enforcement agencies to lie to judges, most of which took the form of pen register requests rather than search warrants, 
detailing the wholesale harvesting of cell phone numbers by repurposed military equipment. Also admitted during the briefing was the fact that the RCMP didn't seek approval from the Canadian government's FCC equivalent, ISED. Adams conceded that until two months ago, the RCMP itself failed to get express approval to use MDIs from Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada, formerly Industry Canada, the government body responsible for regulating technology that might interfere with wireless communications. He said the RCMP believed at one point that an exemption introduced in early 2015 to the Radio Communications Act allowing the use of cellular jammers might also accept exempt the use of MPIs, but SED ultimately disagreed. Apparently, the world of law enforcement is so fast moving, there's no time to seek proper clearances, even when you've had the devices in hand for nearly a decade, before double-checking things with regulators. Again, pretty much identical to how things were handled here in the U.S. Blue minds think alike or whatever. With this limited but public disclosure, maybe the RCMP will pursue more prosecutions to the very end, rather than play catch and release with suspected criminals so that it's not all secret secrets don't end up in the defendant's hands. Yeah. <laughs> not really a shock. I mean, no. you kind of had to know. I mean, I remember seeing that story, oh God, a couple months ago, that they had let these mobsters go, and I'm going, well, that's crazy. I mean, that's the Canadian Mafia, and they were really tight-lipped about it. And it wasn't until really recently that we knew why they were so tight-lipped about it. But yet again, law enforcement has pissed off regulators, judges, <laughs> everybody else. <laughs> That's kind of what they do. Yeah. That's kind of what they do. But yeah, thinking that an exemption when they're yeah. interfering with wireless communications? Yeah, yeah. right. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, I mean, once again, Canada is kind of like the UK in the sense that it, your regulators don't fuck about. No. You know? <laughs> no, the, so, this particular one, yeah, it's probably going to cause them a lot of issues. Now that they've yeah, admitted they've got them. Oh, yeah. Um, I yeah. said, we'll probably do an investigation. Because, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, regulators love doing investigations. Uh, oh, yeah, they do. It's one of the things that gets them money, so, yeah. Yep. Yes, sir. <clears throat> and I'll probably find the RCMP uh, mm -hmm. and then charge them for a license. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All good things. All good things come to those who, I don't know, spy? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so here, here's something interesting. So, they talked to Hamilton Police Service in Canada, which... Hamilton police said crime would flourish if cell phone surveillance records were disclosed. Huh. You know, doesn't that sound an awful lot like we can't tell you about the device because then people will know how we use the evidence against them. Criminals yeah. will know how to get it. Yeah. So we can't tell you because then people will know. Yeah. <laughs> right? And? <laughs> okay. So, so. Yeah. And you know what's funny? It, it's It's got to be universal. Everything that happens here is the same that happens there, is the same that happens in Germany, in the UK, France, Ireland. I, I would bet you... I, I will say, if, if you think you have a private phone mm -hmm. conversation in the UK, 
you're friggin' insane. We have the most advanced communication spying network in the world. We invented a lot of the technology, so yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're a bit ahead of everybody else. There is no privacy anymore, at least not so far as I can tell. So, yeah, uh, Hamilton police had crime would flourish if cell phone surveillance records disclosed. Hamilton police service warned warned the criminal elephant in elephant wow they warned that the criminal elephant the criminal elephant in the room yeah the criminal element would flourish if service was forced to reveal whether or not it owned or used cell phone surveillance technology in response to a cbc hamilton freedom of information request the service argued in january that broader public interest is best served with the public having faith in the institution knowing we will give criminal access to our investigative techniques and invoked possibilities of terrorism and increased crime as reasons not to provide documents to a CBC Hamilton reporter. The police have been fighting the freedom of information request for nearly a year. The disclosure of even minor details could harm law enforcement by telling adversaries, by letting adversaries put together the pieces of technology like a jigsaw puzzle, the service argued. But then, as broader national security of the use of technology by local police forces intensified, the service abruptly changed course and admitted last week it didn't have it or use it. Chief Eric Grit said Thursday that there was an inconsistency in response, but that there was nothing nefarious behind it. The province's Information and Privacy Commissioner said it was unprecedented to have a public media statement come out contradicting an agency position on releasing information at the same time it's actively fighting to keep it a secret. Last June, Hamilton police demanded, um, sorry, denied a request by CBC Hamilton under the Municipal Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act to see any records relating to the services acquisition and or use of the technology. The technology acts like a cell phone tower. We know it's spoof cell phones. Don't really need to know that. The service refused to confirm or deny the existence of a record, citing the possibility that disclosure could either reveal investigative techniques used or possibly being used by the police. After the CDC Hamilton appealed the refusal, the Hamilton Police Service painted a dire picture of the to the IT okay to the ITC of what would happen even if it revealed it didn't have the devices. If it was known that the institution did not in fact have a cell site simulator, the criminal element would then feel able to operate in such a fashion that they could go unchecked, undetected, which could facilitate their criminal activity. On the other hand, the criminal element may be operating under the assumption that the institution has cell site simulators, therefore hindering their criminal activity. What? In a broader sense, for example, if the public knew that the institution no longer had roadside breathalyzers, there's an impression that there would be an increase in commission of the unlawful act of impaired driving. And in those submissions, the police service also argued a justification for not revealing the documents was what it considered to be the suspect motives of CBC Hamilton reporter Kelly Bennett, who filed the initial request and has appealed the refusal to the the province. We do not believe the requester has a sympathetic or compelling need to receive the information, Hamilton police wrote. The appellant is from the media and is looking to write an article for her own professional gain. Civil rights groups across the country have raised concerns about the devices, which, depending on the model, could enable officers to secretly monitor phone calls and anything transmitted from mobile phones, like text, photos, and location information. Some gather information from the phone's bystanders nearby. 
The appeal through the province is ongoing and the police have not backed away from their stance not to confirm or deny the existence of records related to the request. Meanwhile, last Wednesday, the Hamilton Police Spokesman Constable Stephen Walting told CBC News the service doesn't have the technology and had not used it for any investigations in 2015 or 16. The response came in regard to a CBC national story about the police forces using the technology. Why the RCMP decided to do what it did, I have no idea. Um, this is a different story. Sarah Beamish, Ontario's Information and Privacy Commissioner, said in a statement that it's not uncommon for institutions to change their original decision during the mediation or decision process through the IPC, but usually when they do so through the appeals process. We are unaware of any situations where the release of information has come out in a statement to the media, he said. Walton later explained to CBC Hamilton that he didn't know what was happening in the freedom of information process. He, accept, he suggested that CBC Hamilton forward the information he provided to the IPC to add to the appeal file. Gertz said he wanted to review the service's previous comments about the criminal element going unchecked undetected before communicating further. But he also said he stood by that commentary as an argument against disclosure at the time the comment was made earlier this year. He said the RCMP's decision to go public in recent weeks with its use of the devices changed the context around the technology. The RCMP publicly confirmed for the first time it owns 10 devices, but insisted it cannot currently intercept calls, text messages, and other private communications. Why the RCMP decided to do what it did, I have no idea. You'll have to check with them, Gert said. Now that some information is in public domain, it is unclear what will happen with the appeal, which has stretched on for nearly a year since CBC Hamilton's initial request for information about the service's use of technology in May 2016. So, yeah, what I get from this story is Hamilton police definitely have an IMCI catch, IMSI <laughs> catcher. Oh, yeah, they do. And use it. Because, uh -huh. uh -huh. yeah, all, all the double dealing. We will neither confirm or deny. As soon as somebody says that, you go, you've got it. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. You know, they're... And then the smokescreen claiming they didn't have one. It's like, yeah, uh -huh, yeah, whatever. Well, yeah. Well, I Why mean, are you fighting so hard against releasing information then? Well, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's kind of... I, I told you I've been like listening to a lot of that Spy Culture podcast. Um and it, he talks a lot about, he, he has talked in the past about Snowden and some other people in that same sort of community and just the information that they've released. Honestly, do you want to know why I think he, you know, why the province decided to say that, yes, they did have these devices? Because they don't have as many of them as everybody thinks. And if they can just get people scared of the boogeyman, that's going to change how people behave. I mean, it's exactly what they said in the fourth or fifth story here, that yeah. if people knew that they didn't have them, they would go acting normally. <laughs> because when you're being surveilled, when you're being spied upon, when you no longer have privacy, you behave completely differently than you would if you were never being spied upon. Although, I don't know. I mean, it seems like the UK has been under constant surveillance forever, and I don't see that anybody has 
changed the way they acted then, have they? Not really, no. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I guess... Thanks, thanks to the massive amounts of surveillance, lots more people who get in fights at the weekend because they're drunk mm -hmm. uh, get caught by the police. Because uh, it's hard to escape when there's a network of cameras watching all the streets. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean... Yeah. Lots of crimes down in the UK, despite what mm -hmm. certain newspapers keep telling people. Uh, <laughs> the the, yes. the, the, the more have. crimes are reported than the used sun. to be, which is why these yeah. newspapers can get away with saying, "Oh, violent crimes up." It's like, <laughs> no, but it's reporting standards have changed, so all the numbers <laughs> are up, you dickheads. So what you're saying is violent crimes are actually down. <laughs> violent <laughs> crimes down. Reporting standards are way down. So you can make up whatever claim you wish. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how it goes. But I think that a lot of this stuff, the reason a lot of it has been released is to make people fear the boogeyman. Yeah. And the boogeyman is your government, your government, my government, China's government. Um, there are legitimate problems with the way they're doing things but i just don't think they're doing it on as wide a scale as we think they are you no. know what i mean they've got they, the they don't have the manpower or resources to be doing it everywhere at no. all times i mean they don't have enough quantum computing power at this point to handle all the information and i don't care what kind of a selector they type into the system because yeah i'm you know i'm, I'm talking in the uk you. in the uk for instance okay I am completely confident in saying that if GCHQ wants to see what I'm doing on my computer, on my phone, and everything, they can. Oh, sure. But they'd have to target all our tech at me. They don't just generally catch everything and go, oh, here, that guy's doing that. Right. That's um, not how they work. <laughs> they just don't have no. the resources. I mean, are they spying on everybody? No. Probably. Are they really spying on you when you're looking at, like, hemp e-liquid to vape? Probably not. I don't think you're really... I don't think that is really doing anything for them. It's not I mean, they're, they're they don't tr give a shit. All these, all these agencies have trigger conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you don't exactly. meet the trigger conditions, they're not going to know what the hell you're doing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Now, see, I talk to you all the time. I don't yeah. email you, but I talk to you all the time. So that means nine times out of ten, all my communications are being intercepted. Yeah. Right now, when you and I are doing this podcast, I know anything I say to you is being heard. Probably by a computer. It's, or, you know. Hey, how, some... how's it hanging? Yeah. <laughs> or by, you know some poor bastard who happened to pick up something we said in this election term and they're bored out of their skull listening to this now because well, it's the well, same old same old i shouldn't recede here i think okay. we're definitely being listened to because after we made the comments about hey whenever we discuss something something about it always appears in the news the next day <laughs> hasn't happened yeah. this week i think they panicked <laughs> i doubt it but you know what i mean I know that. I know that for a fact. I know anytime I call my friend in Canada or I, I Skype with her or I text with her, whatever, I know all that's being intercepted. And yeah. because that's being intercepted, everything else I have is being intercepted as well. Yeah, but yeah, so as we said, it's that. probably not being looked at. 
I don't think it's being looked at that closely. I really don't. I don't think the government... I think they want to make themselves into, to borrow a Buffy term, the big bad. Yeah. I don't think they are the big bad. I mean, I think they're the kind of naughty. I think they're really fucking scary in a lot of ways, but I don't think they're the big bad. The bumbling um, bad would be my... They, uh, they kind of yeah. are the bumbling bad. I, you know, now... What China's doing with my information is far more concerning to me now. Yeah, the China China probably is the one country that definitely has a bit of spare man power to throw into this. Um. Sure. What China is doing with my information is what concerns me. And there are reasons for that. Um, Opera has a built-in VPN. Yeah. And ever since we've gotten rid of all of our privacy conditions, thank you so much, Mr. Trump everyone's being being told well there's not much you can do but you can use a vpn most people are too fucking lazy to set one up so if you go to opera and you log in and you select to use a vpn you're using a vpn unfortunately you're using a vpn on china technology yeah you know the opera is made in china and if you think your information isn't going right to china you're out of your mind Having, so, having having owned a, a, a mobile phone that came with Chinese version oh, of yeah. Android, yeah, that is, if it's Chinese, some, it's spying on you. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is. That's some scary shit. Getting that out is a job of work, but you get it out, you'll be somewhat safer. Yeah. One thing I do believe that Snowden said and I do believe it's actually true, is that he said that the information of people who live in the countries, your information where you are and my information where I am, is treated a lot better than the foreign flow of information that's going into those countries. That well, hell yeah. I mean, my, my, my data is has legislation covering it. Same with mm -hmm. you. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean, my, my government... <laughs> So far, <laughs> can't just do you know listening to what everything I'm doing. Uh, I well, have they, they have to have they have to reason. have um, intent. Yeah, right. I well, have to I mean, be doing something that they think nefarious. Yeah, yeah, nefarious and going to hurt somebody. But to any, as you say, any communications to abroad, yeah, they can do what they like because the oh, local shit, law yeah. doesn't cover. Well, I mean, that's why all of the fiber optic cables, you know, that's the perfect place to tap. That's why they chose to tap them yeah. so long ago. And all this talking that we do about IMS high catchers, we talk about the government's buying. Um, we really neglect all the stuff that's going through the telecoms. Yeah. Because that's where the real spying is happening. You know, that is where the on the ground shit is happening. Is right there in the transatlantic cables, right there with the telecoms. All that information is flowing to them. The government's taking it from them, saying thank you very much. Um, that's where your danger lies. Not so much in the hacking tools that the government is using on people. I mean, there is some danger in that, but it's well, just I mean, not I think I've mentioned to you, you before. I used ahead. to live. I used to live near. Um, Basically, a server farm that handled all communications between North America, which also includes Iceland, Newfoundland, etc., right. and Europe. Mm -hmm. And that's that's an Inverness, folks. 
lovely Highland okay. city um, yes. that nobody would think anything of. But mm -hmm. under one of the buildings in Inverness, there's a big server, and all yeah. it does is route the communications from North America to the mm -hmm. UK and Europe. Yep. And guess what? It's owned by the government. Yes, okay, in this case, it was actually the Highlands and Islands Development Board, but that's a subset of the UK government, basically. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So it's, it's, it's very sneaky, though, because it's kind of a charity-type thing. <laughs> but, the, but, yeah. yeah. But all that was running through one place. Yeah. So you think they can't tap it? Of yeah. course they of course they can tap it, you know. It's all going I mean, through one place. So it's like, it yeah, just copy whatever that's doing. Yeah, exactly. So. And then it all goes to the thing that looks like um, Iron Man's, you know. Lair, yeah. His, layer, well, his, yeah. Um, yeah, his Built -in generator. Built-in chest piece, yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously that doesn't cover direct communication to Europe, uh, which has... Yeah hubs down south but certainly mm -hmm. everything coming in from north america goes through that one hub <laughs> see i really think people had an overblown sense of the privacy that they thought they had for a really long time you know people walked around and thought oh there's nothing going on you know my government wouldn't do this to me it can't see well, for instance it can't see when i send somebody you know when i'm sexting um but they can't you know, um, Hell, I mean, in the UK, even our newspapers know what people are doing on their phones. <clears throat> well, I, there are certain that. court <laughs> cases, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be quite fair, those people had the worst passwords I've ever seen in my life. Password one two three. Yeah. A B C D, one two three four. Really? How is that protecting yourself? I mean, you're not even fucking trying at that point. You know. I don't care who you are. You, you've got to have some imagination when it comes to passwords. But, yeah. So, I mean, I can see being concerned. This stuff really does scare me. But not in that context. In the context I'm going to get to in a minute, this is how it scares me. Federal lawsuit alleges Chicago police illegally spied on activists, residents with stingray surveillance. This is where it scares me. A federal lawsuit against Chicago police alleges officers employed cell site simulators or stingray spying devices in violation of the First Amendment rights of innocent citizens during a reclaimed Martin Luther King Jr. Day action on January 15, 2015. Chicago-based organizations, activists, and residents came together for a protest in March on the west side of Chicago. The intent was to use the holiday to remember parts of King's legacy often ignored by politicians and the media. Activists also sought to link the holiday to issues of police brutality. Jerry Boyle, a National Lawyers Guild legal observer frequently at demonstrations in Chicago, claims police used a cell site simulator to search his private cell phone and the cell phones of nearby protesters, bystanders, and Chicago residents at about 8 p.m. According to the filed lawsuit, Police deployed the cell site simulator in the immediate vicinity of private homes, private offices, juvenile courts, medical facilities, and at least one church, as well as protesters engaging in protected political speech. Police lacked a warrant or probable cause to search and seize the cell private cell phones of Boyle or any other person. The surveillance was not by mistake, but rather as the result of a clear policy. 
the people of Chicago should be able to exercise their First Amendment rights to freedom of speech, association, and assembly without being spied upon by the police, Boyle declared. Government spying on its own citizens without appropriate judicial oversight is inconsistent with the freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution. Boyle seeks to have the lawsuit certified as a class action lawsuit. One class of individuals is anyone the Chicago police unconstitutionally spied upon between January 12, 2015 and the present day. A subclass is anyone who was targeted by police because they were at a political demonstration. That topic, an attorney with Lovery and Lovery Attorneys at Law was representing Boyle, insisted any surveillance of political groups is particularly troubling. He added, but there is no dispute that even when CPD has a valid basis to track a legitimate suspect, the technology results in a search of every other phone in the area to find the suspect. This is a violation of the Fourth Amendment rights of hundreds, if not thousands, of innocent bystanders every time it's used, Hoppick argued. Chicago police closely monitored the actions of protest groups after Michael Brown was shot and killed by Officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. Police officials also outlined plans to deploy undercover cops to spy on protests organized by the Black Youth Project 100 and other church groups in 2015, one month before the video of police killing LaQuan McDonald was released. Journalist Mike Dumpy, who reported on the spying plans, wrote, Over the last seven years, the police have spied on anti-Olympic protesters, the Service Employees International Union, critics of the visiting Chinese premier, the Occupy Movement, and the NATO Summit demonstrators. In each case, members of the groups being investigated had spoken out against City Hall or its allies, Dumpy added. Filed complaint suggests the city of Chicago maintains a policy of employing stingray devices to trespass upon search and seize personal information of cell phones without a warrant or probable cause. It asserts the city fails to uphold police accountable for violating the rights of citizens. The city is responsible for any misconduct because it does not adequately train and supervise officers who operate the surveillance equipment. Craig Futterman, another attorney who represents Boyle, stated, the Chicago Police Department can't give its officers weapons but have the power to search and seize our most personal information without any instructions about how to use them. Uh, a clinical professor of law at the University of Chicago and one of the lawyers representing Mr. Boyle said, that's like giving officers guns and telling them to go out and get bad guys even without teaching them how to shoot. We've recently seen how lack of surveillance oversight has played out at the NSA where employees abuse surveillance tools to spy on their spouses, Futterman added. The lawsuit is one of the first civil lawsuits to be filed in a federal court against the police for their use of stingray technology. That's It's going to be a long run, that one, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. All you need is precedence. Yeah. Once you have precedence, floodgates can open, you know, and it's like you said, they keep doing this shit and they're pissing off the judges. Mm-hmm. You know, and especially now that the judges have come out and said, you can't just search someone's phone. Yes. Yeah. You know, the Supreme Court said it, and I almost passed out because I figured, oh my God, somebody actually told them how technology works. Well, I mean, if somebody can get through to judges that. Right, when they use well, an IMSI catcher, right, yes. one of the things you're getting from the phone is the IMEI code for the phone. Right. Which is how the networks identify a specific phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a unique identifier. Yes. So yeah, 
obviously that's private information. Yes. Only the manufacturer, the cell companies, and you, and somebody with a warrant should be able to look at that. Well, you, but no, but no, you MC can. catchers, thousands of people get grabbed at a time. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you go anywhere near McDill Air Force Base up here, you will set those things off like you can't even believe. Yeah. McDill is the one thing that makes you know the quaint little area I live in a first strike zone. We are a first strike zone. Yeah. God. Happy days, right? Um, well, I mean, I, I don't live too close to a first strike zone. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but, you, but you the, the nearest military bases are Glasgow and Edinburgh, so I'm screwed either way anyway. So. Well, we're all screwed. <laughs> um, you know, especially when you've got people taking swipes at uh, unstable world leaders on Twitter. Okay. So, again, where I said where it scares me is not so much that the federal government has them, because the federal government is supposed to have laws that they laws they follow and rules they have to abide by. Okay. I don't think those big giant buildings that they're putting all these computers in, I don't think they're going to doom everybody. I don't think it's like the end of Captain America Winter Soldier where all the ships are flying and they're just going to take out all these people that have constitutional beliefs and, and this sort of thing. I don't think that's what's happening. That, that's a couple of years down the road. That's, I think you're okay. That's not, that's not tomorrow. We're fine. <laughs> but, you know, there, there are there are reasons to be leery of this stuff. And, and here's another one. Cell phone spy tools have flooded, flooded local police departments. This is where you have to be concerned, right? I mean, it depends on, on how your police are, but in many cases, if you're poorer or you're browner or you live in not so great a neighborhood, you're, you're bound to be targeted. Major cities throughout the U.S. have spent millions on mobile surveillance tools, but there are still a few rules about what happens to the information they capture. A little after midnight on November 28, 2014, hundreds of Black Lives Matter protesters filled the streets of downtown Chicago. The demonstration was one of many that erupted in cities nationwide soon after a Missouri grand jury failed to indict a Ferguson, Missouri police officer for the shooting death of Michael Brown that August. As protesters marched, a police vehicle crept behind them. Black SUV emblazoned with City of Chicago Emergency Management, appeared to have two 360-degree cameras sprouting from its roof and a command center in the back. Wherever the vehicle drove by, protesters reported that their cell phones stopped working. A week later, audio of police radio dispatch from the protesters was released online. In the recording, an officer alerts a department intelligence analyst about one of the protest organizations. One of the girls here, she's been on her phone a lot, the officer says, you guys picking up any information where they're going, possibly? The analyst responds, yeah, we're keeping an eye on it. We'll let you know if we hear anything. The leaked conversation and the cell phone disruptions led many activists to conclude that the police were eavesdropping on them. The story circulated widely in protest circles, but the Chicago Police Department never confirmed any such surveillance operations that night. Legally, listening in on private communications between citizens talking over mobile phones would require a Title III search warrant. But one thing is indisputable. 
the technology to snoop on nearby phones exists, and the Chicago Police Department has had it for over 10 years. And such spy gear is not limited to Chicago. Hundreds of documents obtained by CityLab from the country's top 50 legal largest police departments over the last 10 months revealed that similar cell phone surveillance devices have been quietly acquired by local authorities nationwide. The majority of those departments have at least one of two main types of digital age spy tools. Cell phone interception devices used to covertly track or grab data from nearby mobile devices and cell phone extraction devices used to crack open locked phones that are in police possession and scoop out all sorts of private communications and contact. Now, we don't hear about those too much. That's why I thought this story was interesting. Access to such devices was once largely limited to intelligence agencies like the NSA and FBI. Their acquisition by local police departments is a relatively recent, less discussed part of a wider police militarization trend. With only a few clicks, police can now map out individuals' social networks, communication timelines, and associates' locations based on the data captured by these surveillance tools. As a tool for crime fighting, such intelligence gathering can be powerful indeed. An interception tool could, for example, help police track down a kidnapper. An extraction device could then quickly identify their network of contacts. But the prospect of handing this military-grade spy gear to local law enforcement has inspired concern, in part because of the lack of uniform regulatory safeguards to protect citizens' privacy. With 1,800... I'm sorry, 18, yeah, 18,000 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. You know there are going to be many that are just going to jump on the technology bandwagon without regard for civil liberties, said Norm Stampler, former police chief of the Seattle Police Department and now police reform advocate. These concerns have taken on new urgency with the ascension of Donald Trump. The new administration has taken power and an outbreak of civil resistance in cities nationwide and signs that federal authorities are opposed to expand domestic surveillance capabilities. The president has frequently spoken of his plans for mass deportation of undocumented immigrants and mass surveillance of Muslim Americans and other domestic targets. Executing those plans would be dramatically helped by harvesting, retaining, and distributing personal information from the electronic devices many of us carry in our pockets. And your local police may already have the tools to do just that. My game begins. Two decades ago, cell phone surveillance tools were mostly used by federal law enforcement and intelligence community personnel for national security and high-level criminal investigations. But after 9-11, as police departments veered into counter-terror operations themselves, local cops began to snatch up these sophisticated devices. In December 2015, The Intercept released a catalog of military surveillance tools leaked by an intelligence community source concerned by the perceived militarization of domestic law enforcement. The catalog included tools that could crack, track thousands of people's cell phones at once, extract deleted text messages from captured phones, and monitor ongoing calls and text messages. Following this news last April, CityLab began sending public records requests to the top 50 largest police across the country, asking to purchase orders and invoices from 2012 to 2016 related to any of the devices listed in the catalog. Note, the 50 largest list is based on data released in 2010 from the police pay journal and thus does not include some departments now above, now among the top 50 largest. Of the 50 police departments sent public's records request, only eight claimed not to have acquired any spy tools used by the Intercept's intelligence source. 
at least 12 have admitted having cell phone interception devices and 19 have admitting having cell phone extraction devices. The responses, security-based rejections and outstanding requests are still being processed for CityLab, suggest that at a minimum, 39 of the 50 police departments have acquired at least some of these military-grade surveillance tools over the last four years. Um, there is actually a cache of documents, which is probably going to be interesting to at least some people here. So I will pop that into the chat. Sorry for the clicking noises. In case you wanted to see that, that's in the document cloud there in the article. Um, in the map, in the map that's linked there. You can get more details on the various capabilities that the police departments who responded to requests have acquired in recent years. You can click on a city to see its department spending, years of spending, acquired capabilities, and surveillance gear vendors. The non-redacted purchases recorded in documents obtained from 27 departments total more than $4.6 million. Note, this figure includes all equipment disbursements released in the documents going back as far as 2008 in a handful of cases. At least 12 of the departments surveyed have surveillance cell phone interception devices known as cell site simulators, though this is likely an undercount given that eight departments refuse to hand over records. Sometimes referred to as a stingray, the suitcase size device um, masquerades as a cell tower, tricking all nearby cell phones to connect to itself. Um, this connection can then be exploited to collect hundreds of phone locations, calls, and text logs, and with certain versions, voice and text messages. Cell site simulators can be used to collect data on phones in a target area or to locate phones of interest. Cell site simulators have aroused the ire of privacy advocates because they can seize data from thousands of phones nearby that may be irrelevant to an ongoing police investigation. What is known about police use of these tools suggested that these invasive data pullers are not distributed randomly. A recent city lab analysis, for example, found that interceptions were overwhelmingly deployed in low-income and black neighborhoods. Black Lives Matter and left-wing activists have reported suspected use of cell site simulators at numerous political demonstrations over the last 15 years. According to the records, departments are also rapidly improving interception capabilities through cell site simulator upgrades. Last September, for example, in response to a records request, the Baltimore County Police released a redacted 2012 purchase order showing the department had acquired a redacted device from Digital Receiver Technology, a subsidiary of Boeing. The device is likely a dirt box cell site simulator, given that these are the only kind of Digital Receiver Technology devices that CityLab inquired about. Dirt boxes are far more powerful than ordinary cell site simulators and have been used by the NSA to intercept tens of millions of communications in France, according to freelance reporter Al Winston in Revival. They can be mounted on planes to track 10,000 cell phones at once or to capture calls and text messages from hundreds of cell phones at the same time. It is unclear if Baltimore County used their dirt tool in a similar way, but the department's aviation unit does have helicopters in which a dirt box could be mounted. The department did not respond to City Lab inquiries about its DIRT surveillance tool, and DRT spokesman Megan McCormick said they could not comment on City Lab's request for information. The records also show several of the departments have acquired other tools to increase the types of phones they can intercept, improving the range of their interceptions, and sharpen the precision of their tracking. Sorry, I'm trying to break. 
At least 11 departments have purchased other brands of cell site simulators from Harris Corporation, which can capture phone locations, call logs, and text logs of anyone, criminal suspect, protester, or random bystander within roughly 200 meters of their department, depending on the model. Over 2012-2014, for example, Baltimore, Boston, Milwaukee, and Phoenix police each spent between $60,000 and $154,000 to upgrade older cell site simulator models to the company's Hailstorm devices, which can intercept more secure 4G phones. The documents show that all four of these departments have also purchased Harris Harpoon devices, which amplify the signal of cell site simulators' interceptions. Harris, a Florida-based defense contractor, accounted for over 3.2 million of the disbursements released in the documents. Harris spokesman Jim Burke declined to comment for this article. Some departments are also opting for cell phone trackers that are even more precise and covert than cell site simulators. A 2012 Fort Worth police invoice and accompanying quote shows the department acquired two handheld electronic tracking devices, PW Corporation's Quasimodo and Jugular 3. These tools can help authorities locate target phones in crowds or in large buildings and are very useful in combination with cell site simulators. Now, I hadn't heard about those before either. So I'm looking into those soon. Like the Hailstorm, which cannot locate target phones as precisely. The Hailstorm Singray is used for locating a specific building, but the handheld device can get you close to the scent to the right room or apartment, says Mike Katz Lacabre a privacy advocate with the Center for Human Rights and Privacy. The tracker's passive design, only measuring radio signals, also means they can never be detected. As Scott Schober, a cell site manufacturer, told the Wall Street Journal, a lot of the guys using it are saying, I don't have to tell anyone I'm using it because your device is completely passive, so I'm not getting into any privacy issues. A redacted 2013 LAPD document suggests the force also has a handheld passive tracking device. The records also show that at least 19 police departments acquired cell phone extraction devices, which allow police to crack open locked devices and collect vast amounts of phone data, such as call logs, emails, social media messages, timestamp pass location data, and even deleted texts and photos without any assistance from cell phone companies. Um... Knowing that we say that, does anybody remember a certain brouhaha with Apple? <clears throat> All 19 of these departments bought extraction devices made by the Israel com Israeli firm Solbright, whose version or versions of the universal forensic extraction device allow cops to scoop up both data immediately visible on the phone and that which has been deleted or hidden. Police spent nearly 745000 on such tools, which is far less expensive than cell phone interception devices and thus more accessible to smaller departments. As Joseph Cox revealed at Motherboard, numerous state police agencies have also purchased these devices. The records also suggest that Cellbright products enable departments to go for the simple, far beyond, the simple collection of data contained within the phones. The Baltimore, Seattle, Oklahoma City, Jacksonville, Kansas City, Louisville, Tucson, and Miami Police Department's Cellbrite Pro Series purchases all appear to include the firm's cloud analyzer tool, which extracts private user cloud data by utilizing login information extracted from the mobile device. According to Cellbrite, in some cases, cloud data does not only include communications on platforms like Facebook and Instagram, but also individual timestamp movements minute by minute based on private Google location history collected from Google Cloud servers. 
Celebrate did not respond to City Lab's request for an interview, but its blog features testimonials from police who praise the device's efficiency. Some activists contend that past experience suggests similar tools have been used to extract information about their phones. Andrew Williams, an attorney who is active in the Black Lives Matter movement in New York City, says she suspects police may have extracted information from her phone during an arrest at a protest in December 2015. While we're in handcuffs waiting for transport to the precinct, a white shirt, a senior officer, took my photo phone out of my pocket and took the phones of four others, says Williams. After leaving for a while, he put my phone back in my bag before we went to the precinct. A few hours later, when I finally got access to my phone to call my attorney, I didn't have to put in any password. It was already open. Williams doesn't know what, if anything, police may have done with her phone, but she still feels uneasy. It's shocking that it appeared as though my phone had been tampered with, she said. It couldn't have been a warrant because it was done immediately after an arrest. I don't know what they've gotten. Similar concerns about the use of cell phone extraction devices abound across the country. Some legal advocates, for example, worry about recent decisions by the Washington, D.C. police to hold phones of activists, lawyers, and journalists arrested during the Trump inauguration protests for evidence may expose sensitive source and client communications to police. As these military-grade spy tools pour down into local police departments across the country, legal experts are concerned that their use isn't in keeping with individuals' due process rights. Law enforcement practices vary dramatically across the country. In 2014, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that police could not extract data from an arrested individual's cell phone without obtaining a warrant. Its ruling itself did not give clear guidance on how broad police warrant requests could be designed, and such decisions are left up to law enforcement in many cases. And with the interception of cell phone data, the picture is even murkier. Given the dragnet feature of cell site simulator interceptors, federal agencies like the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice in a few states such as California, Washington, Virginia, Minnesota, Maryland, and Utah have required police obtain a search warrant for deployments. But police agencies in other states continue to intercept cell data after presenting judges with a pen register application, a court order whose standard is lower than that of a search warrant. Authorities need only show that captured information will be relevant to ongoing criminal investigation. Civil liberties advocates argue that this lower standard is particularly troubling given cell site simulators' interceptions of innocent nearby phones in the process. More opaque is still what happens to all the data extracted or intercepted once police have it. Michael Price Counsel at NYU University Law of School of Law. Brennan Center says some courts have not placed any explicit limits on how long intercepted data can be retained after police extraction for forensic analysis. The policies are not uniform, he says. The Department of Justice guidance on retention of data from cell site simulators, but the state or local policies may be very different. The documents City Lab obtained include some police departments are acquiring software to build up large surveillance databases based in part on data captured by cell phone interception and extraction devices. In 2012, the Fort Worth Police Department, for example, bought servers and software from a Nebraska company called Penlink that enables police to store and organize intercepted cell phone metadata, such as call logs and locations in computer databases. The Homeland Security Grant Program declined City Lab's request for an interview on its use of Penlink, suggesting we file another public records request, and Penlink did not respond to City Lab's request for comment. A publicly available literature on Penlink shows that its products can storm process large amounts of intercepted metadata, allowing officers to create visualizations of individual social networks and geolocated calling patterns.
police departments are also linking together hundreds of people at a time using data captured in a cell phone extraction operation. As of Penlink, departments that have cell rights link analysis, such as the Miami Police Department, can also create network maps based on individuals' call and text log histories. Cellbrite link analysis can also create timelines of all extracted communications between two or more people, including call logs, text messages, and mutual locations. Such data analysis operations, which would have taken police weeks in the past, can now be accomplished with just a few clicks. Raymond Foster, a former Los Angeles Police Department lieutenant and police technology expert, says police are inclined to gather as much data as possible. Even information from people whose phones just happen to be caught up in a nearby interception operation. For a specific crime, the data gives you lead on witnesses and the suspect by looking at who made the cell phone calls nearby, said Foster. Your phone geolocates you, and you have a little machine that is constantly communicating a ton of information about you. That's such a broad approach to intelligence gathering, critics say, but some people are under suspicion for simply living in a neighborhood near a suspected crime, or for knowing someone whose phone has been searched. They're essentially using a dragnet approach to figure out who they're going to go after, says Josemar Twalo, a writer and anti-police brutality activist in New York City. The turn towards technology is supposed to not have all the bad optics of racial profiling and not be prone to human bias, but this is obviously a way that profiles people by where they live, which is essentially by race. Surveillance fears in the Trump era. How far could vocally captured data travel? According to the records released by the department, Fort Worth's data organizing products are being used as a regional asset for surrounding and local police state agencies. News reports suggest that departments in Virginia and Washington are sharing intercepted data through joint access to Penlink software and servers. Penlink's products guides point out that law enforcement can use the software to import and export intercepted data to and from national intelligence databases operated by federal law enforcement agencies who also use Penlink, such as the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The distribution of local police data to federal agencies could be crucial for ICE and FBI officials seeking to identify the networks and track the locations of groups facing extra scrutiny from the Trump administration, such as undocumented immigrants and Muslim Americans. CityLab made numerous inquiries to the Department of Homeland Security about its data sharing policies with local police departments, but DHS officials should taste Long told City Lab that any information requested about ICE privacy policies on this matter would have to be sought through an FOIA request, which City Lab has since filed. Mike German, a former FBI agent and now a fellow with Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program, says that federal law enforcement officials are able to access locally captured police data both through official and informal sharing channels. They can literally be looking over someone's shoulder to get what they need, says German, pointing to the fact that DHS, FBI, and local police officials sometimes work under the same roof as at DHS organized fusion centers. Nima Singh Giuliani, a legislative counsel for the ACLU on privacy and technology issues, says this data sharing may play a role in the administration's immigration enforcement plans. You're going to have states and localities increasingly sharing sensitive information where somebody is would they know what their social networks are, not just with each other, but also with federal government, says Giuliani. If you are a targeted DACA recipient, will ICE use it to target your social network because some of those are assumed to be undocumented? These are mass dragnet surveillance techniques originally designed for national security purposes overseas, not domestic immigration enforcement. 
As German notes, cell phone tracking can be tremendously effective on otherwise law-abiding targets. Criminals tend to try and make tracking their data more difficult, so this kind of mass collection and telephony data will more easily find our political activists, our civil society leaders, and just regular people, he says. If the courts, if the public knew how powerful these tools were, they would move to restrict their use. Yeah. That's the scary part. Yeah, well, that's, that's the part that's in, scary. In some ways, I wish they'd stop calling it all military-grade technology, though. It ceased well, to be military-grade technology 15 to 20 years ago. I mean, it's public domain. The phone hacking stuff, I mean, yeah. well, you remember when the story first cropped up about that particular Apple device? Yes. Yeah, I mean, a, a newspaper in the UK found, oh, look, 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 they're selling one on eBay. Yeah, I mean... So, yeah, I mean, it's not thing. military by a yeah. long shot. Not yeah, anyone can get hold of them, really. Uh, yeah. Which yeah, is know. really worrying. Well, I mean, if I can buy one, you can buy one, and anybody with a decent chunk of change. And let's say over... Some of them were pretty cheap. I've seen some. Well, yeah, it was a um, $100 or something like that yeah. for the cheapest ones. Right. Well, I mean... That's, that's that's one good thing about the IMS eye catchers. They're a lot more mm -hmm. expensive. And the the handheld passive phone trackers the do cost an awful trackers. lot of money. Well, they do because they they manage to get around the civil liberties aspects. Yeah. And that's that's the this is the part I find scary. Like most of the time I say, you know, the federal government is screwing us, it's it's bad to have them around, look at the stuff they've done. And yet, your civil liberty protections are kind of abided by these people, not completely, but more so than the local police departments who are kind of like, ah, fuck it, who needs a warrant, you know? Yeah. It doesn't really make me depressed. I mean, you needed to know this stuff. I needed to know it. You needed to know it. And the reason you need to know it is so you can tell other people. And the more people you tell, the more prepared people are going to be for this sort of stuff to happen. And there is going to be either a turn to retro technology, where we talk to people one-on-one -on -one without going to social media and those sorts of things and try to retain the little privacy we have, or we're going to get mad and tell the government no. And if enough people tell the government no, you know, People know they're going to be cost an election. They're going to do something about it. I mean, this is kind of what it all comes down to. I mean, you can get depressed about it. You can get cynical about it. But there's really no need. You need to know this stuff. This is like survival stuff. You've got to know that it's out there. Right? This is why City Lab is actually a really good resource. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of the stuff out here... A lot of the stuff I link to here is a really good resource. City Lab, excellent resource for this sort of thing. You know, and because I will read anything, left wing, right wing, middle of the road, whatever, I tend to find a lot of stuff. I don't know anybody who would have picked up that City Lab piece and read it themselves, right? Yeah. Anybody interested enough in that to do it? No. 
So you'd so think, I read it. I mean, yeah, I've, I've got an unusual, uh, well, you know, I've got an unusual mm -hmm. take on all this stuff because yes. with the way my brain works and my upbringing, I was an early adopter of cell phones because mm -hmm. where I lived, very useful. Yeah. But I immediately knew, oh, this works by radio waves. So, yeah, this isn't secure. No. <laughs> but everybody... Automatically, thinks... that, that goes into my head. But everybody else thinks it's secure, right? And, and I was one of those people, too. Yeah. I really was. Where, like, now I really doubt, like, Edward Snowden and I doubt a whole lot of other people who leaked a lot of information, okay? I doubt a lot of them, right? I think there's an ultimate reason... A, they were allowed to live because, let's be honest, how easy is it to poison someone? Russia's done it plenty of times. Yeah, and, reason... and Russia aren't subtle about it either. Yeah. Right, and <laughs> it's not just Russia. You know, yeah. people die all the time in horrible, horrible accidents, especially somebody who's epileptic like Snowden. It'd be very easy to kill him by withholding his medication or um, and you can't tell me governments haven't done that in the past. There's a reason that man is allowed to walk the earth today. There's a reason William Bimney isn't dead. Um, and I, I will tell you, if you are curious at all about Snowden, and, and I very much was, I, I would suggest you go to a place called Boiling Frog's Post and look at the work that they've done there both on, on Edward Snowden and, and Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, I, I think you'll find some interesting things there. And it took me a long time to verify some of the stuff I saw, but I have. And it really does make me question things. I don't think the government's omnipotent anymore. I don't think they're the boogeyman. But I do think people that don't know what they're doing with the technology they're running around with are going to hurt a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm a person that doesn't believe in government regulation, but by God, you know, we're at a point now where something has to be done to stop them. Right? The people that don't know what they're doing, they need to be stopped. And you probably need regulation to do it. It's like and unfortunately, before. you currently Personal... have a pumpkin in charge. So, yeah. Right. Well, what I've said is, um, personally, I'm at the point where I'm like, fuck the government. But I can see why you need them. Ordinary people are going to be caught up in these interceptions and these directives for no other reason than where they live. It said so in here. And looking at the information in the document cloud will make you sick. That will make you sick. The implications you're going to draw from that are the same ones that were drawn in this story. And the reasons you need to look at these things is because they're going to affect you. I mean, it just comes down to that. And yeah, Boiling Frogs is really, they're a good source of, of information. Isabel Edmonds has done a really good job there. Um, and not just her, you know. Um, and I think Boiling Frogs post got absorbed into another group. And John W. Whitehead, he, he does a lot of um, uh, good work. Um, he's a lawyer 
who does a lot of work for people who are prosecuted by the government. Um, and he's great. He runs the Rutherford Institute. You may have I've linked to them a bunch of times. There's a lot of people involved in boiling frauds post and they're people worth paying attention to. They check their facts. They know what's going on. Um, and yeah, people don't want to hear this stuff, but sometimes there's a reason. Yeah. News budget. Exactly. So there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, I got turned on to Isabel Edwin's uh, Edwards and, um, all of these people, because I, like I said, I started listening to Tom Secker's um, podcast. Um, he's done two or three of them that I know of. One of them he used to do for Boiling Frogs Post, and it's called The Simpo Wars. Um, and one he's doing now, it's all about how the government is interested in uh, entertainment and how much money they're spending to change the films and stuff that you see um really good stuff really good work by tom sacker um interesting guy spyculture.com is a really great source if you like this kind of thing and i do i, I find the things that spies do are very interesting to me so i find that stuff really really good Corbett Report's also on there. That's another really thorough source. Really to, to, inter to intercede and lighten things a touch. When you mm -hmm. say, you know, spy agencies, you know, um, molding media, etc. Right. Think of Andy Warhol in the Men in Black films. <laughs> that, that would be the extreme version, obviously, but yeah. yeah, they spend an awful lot of time and resources making sure films show you things in a certain way. Yeah, <laughs> um, what is it called? Um, Hollywood, Hollywood Interception. There, there's a couple of really good books on the subject. Yeah, and um, they've actually it. What really makes me sad is like all the work that they've done to all the. Uh, there's a lot of really good films out there that they fucked with that really upset me. Men in Black. Yeah. Um, they did a little bit of work too, not a lot, um, because of course it's a work of fiction. But they've they've also messed with a lot of Will Smith stuff. Enemy of the State. Oh yeah. They messed with Enemy of the State big time. They really changed how that stuff looks, and we know this stuff from from the FOIA requests that Tom Tucker and and people like him have done. So. They've been involved, highly involved well, in the I mean, Avengers most franchise. People, most people don't realize, right? See if you see a film about that involves, well, say Top Gun. Yes. Had oh, F-14s <laughs> and all. Oh my God, the amount of restrictions the US military put on what could appear in that film. Oh yeah. And yeah, literally down to, they were getting lines changed in the script. Mm-hmm. Um... Yes. A lot, yeah, it's probably the film that's been talked about most. You know what's funny? Because it's such a big hit. <laughs> if, if you ever see the FOI request for Cher's Turn Back Time video, yeah, that's that's some funny shit because they were just absolutely horrified that her butt was showing in the video. I'm like, she's struggling her again. No. It's like, it's, it's Cher. You know, what did you expect? <laughs> 
they're like, oh, well, it turned out okay because uh, we're portrayed positively. Oh, my God. They're so obsessed with that. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, they, a, list, there's a list somewhere of lots of films yeah. that they refuse to participate in. Yeah. Um, Kingsman. Kingsman. I mean, their involvement <laughs> in Kingsman blows my mind. Yeah. That's funny. That is some funny shit. That is the most violent movie I think I've ever seen. The church scene? Oh, right, yeah. That's some of the most violent shit I've ever seen. And the government was like, oh, we're fine with that. It's okay if you show violence as long as you don't really show anybody suffering. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's some screwed up stuff, I've, I must admit. Um, the limits that the government places on the entertainment you watch. I love the Avengers films. Right, and to even see how much they've involved themselves in stuff really kind of makes me sad. But it, it makes me think about this stuff. Some of this stuff is a cultural meme, right? Yeah. The stuff that the government knows what you're doing. The government is spying on everything we do. Um, be good, or the government will catch you. You know, sort of like Santa. There's a reason why this cultural meme is allowed to flourish. The government loves this. It thinks it's great. It makes them look omnipotent, like they're the big bad. You know, it it makes people think twice about what they're doing. And, and, and yet, um, I can mention it briefly due to this, mm -hmm. um, sure. the latest Paris attack. Yet another guy who the police already were watching. You know what, really, <laughs> I mean, when you think about the... Here's the thing that gets me about this stuff. Here in America... Um, looking at the Sarnet boys, they were contacted by the FBI or someone multiple times before that Boston bombing attack. Yeah. Why? You know, I mean, that that's a question I have, and that's a legitimate question, right? Why is the FBI getting involved with this stuff with people who are ostensibly becoming terrorists before it happens? And then just walking away afterwards, like, oh, right, job well done. That yeah, should... we, we filled out the paperwork. It'll all be good. Oh, they've done an attack. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. It kind of... <sighs> I, I talked about it the other day. I saw Attack on Titan, the live-action film, the Japanese live-action film, part one and part two the other day. And the part that stuck with me most... I love films. I guess you can tell. <laughs> the part that stuck with me most was part two. Have you seen both the Attack on Titans? No. Okay. They're, they're actually quite good for movies about giant humanoids that go around eating people. Um, the government makes the decision, right? The only way to get the people to unite is to have a common enemy. Then it goes forth with their plan, and it's going to incite blowback at some point. Right? Enough people died, there's going to be blowback. People are going to storm the palace gates, as it were, and, and take things back for themselves. Um, government never considers blowback when it does things. It doesn't consider it when it does it foreign, like on a level of foreign policy, like we do. Um, and they sure don't consider it domestically. And I'm really just sure. trying to not laugh at blowback. Yeah. Well, but you, you know have many me. politicians who are very familiar with blowback. <laughs> you know what I mean. But <laughs> yes. I mean, 
it's an actual term. I yes. mean, it's, it, I didn't I didn't come up with that. It, that was Ron Paul like 30, 40 years ago, standing at the floor of Congress screaming at them. What are you doing here in Syria is going to have serious repercussions. There's going to be blowback, and you won't see it today. He's probably, you he's it probably thinking about JFK. When, yeah. Whatever, but I mean, <laughs> you know, honestly, it, it's a very serious point. You know, at some point, people will get fed up enough, and there will be blowback from domestic decisions, from foreign decisions. And what, what way that's done with foreign decisions you see what happens when terrorism comes to america to roast and apparently in some domestic cases we have that being like eased along by the fbi and we've talked about this before the intercepts talked about this before other sources have talked about this before it's a real and verifiable phenomenon here in this country that before a terrorist commits a terroristic act and gets arrested Nine times out of ten, they will have been visited by the FBI. Hmm. Kind of fucked up, don't you think? Yeah. And nobody talks about this. But it's true. It happens many, many times. And the government never considers what their foreign or domestic policy will do. And it's kind of now... There's an uncomfortable merging of the two. Right? Uh, What used to be foreign policy... What used to be the way that we held our our people suspected of terrorism, right? We held people like that um, in certain ways, and, and we did certain things to them that were pretty diabolical. And now we're finding that happens elsewhere in, in other prisons domestically here in the United States. In a lot of ways, when the government made itself the hollow man, and this, you can trace this back to W, the original W. Uh, after he left the CIA, everything kind of became subcontracted out, especially after the war on terror, because then there was no reason for anybody to have to answer to anybody. There was no one to answer to. All the work was given to independent contractors. Yeah, you should Once... say war on terror, TM, or copyright, because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it was Bush. It was Bush. It was Cheney. It was all those fucking guys. Everything that's happened since is all a result of the things they've done. But because they hollowed out the government, you almost have no say about it. You almost kind of need to get back to a smaller government or not even a smaller government. How about just a government that doesn't subcontract shit out? Um that would actually be a big improvement because there are laws and there are policies that they have to follow and they're audited constantly. Hey, but and if you, if you don't read. farm out all these contracts, where are all these politicians going to work when they retire from being politicians? I mean, I mean, they don't need <sighs> money after they're done being politicians. I'm sorry. But you know what I mean? That's, that's what I, tends I to happen. Um, and similar happens in military organizations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it always does. I mean, you can count on that. But I can never recommend um, the Pentagon Wars highly enough as a film. <laughs> it's just I, I think hilarious. A, I think a good film to explain the way the government does things is Wag the Dog. Yeah. I think it's a great film. If you've never seen it, you're missing out on a film. It explains how the government sells you war wholesale. And you just swallow it and accept it. Um, 
I don't have a problem with war, right? There's there's certain there's going to be certain times where it's worthwhile to have a war. Just you know, it shouldn't be a hair trigger decision. It shouldn't be to sell missiles. We shouldn't be like arming moderate Syrian rebels and then going and fighting these same fucking people. That's a problem. And it's not just that one hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing. It's almost like, well, it's completely like they're in the hands of the military industrial complex more than anything else. And that's a problem for us. But it's a problem for us domestically now because the war on terror has now come to the homeland. It's on our soil. It's on your soil. It's on the soil of everyone. And the fact that this, what they called military industrial technology, which is not what it is, is in these people's hands should scare you. Yep, you we're definitely all well soiled. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I think. Is there anything else in here that's interesting to you? Because there's only a couple stories. Um, yeah, they're they're all pretty much the same this week, funnily enough. But that, yes, you know, that was kind of uh, that was kind of the point. Yeah. Um, man, I think it's good to just have a, a single topic, and it's a good springboard point, and it's a lot easier for me to do the research. When it's just a single topic. I mean, last week, I mean, I really wanted to this week. I wanted to talk about transhumanism, right? <laughs> that's that's just such a hard topic. I mean, last week was hard enough. Transhumanism is going to be something that's like a month away, but I, I think it's worth talking about it because it's here. There are people who have antennas and and all this other stuff. They've implanted them themselves. And Oh, it the, is an interesting topic, yes. The the one story to cover is the 911 calls thing. That, that is an important one because of what it covers, yeah. Okay. You're absolutely right. And this is going to be the last one, I think, for this evening. Police surveillance could interfere with 911 calls, emergency operators warn. This is from Canada, no surprise. RCMP acknowledges the use of spying equipment, but stresses device only used for short periods of time. Emergency operators are raising concerns that surveillance devices used by law enforcement could prevent some mobile phone users from being able to contact 911. The association is concerned about any situation that can make it difficult or impossible for the population to access the 911 service. This Carol Rochelle, president for the yeah, an emergency association from Quebec. L'Association du Centre d'Urgence du Quebec. The group that oversees operations in the province. Thank you so much, Mary. I couldn't have done that without you. A recent CBC News investigation revealed the presence of IMSI interceptors on Parliament Hill in Ottawa and at Montreal's Trudeau Airport. Um, so we all know they're known by the name. Stingray, we know that they can spoof your cell phone into interacting with it instead of a cell phone tower, um, and that they can grab your international mobile subscriber identity. They've been used by Canadian police and security authorities, foreign intelligence, and even organized crime. At the same time, they can also prevent users from making calls, including emergency calls to 911. 
In such cases, subscribers would not know why they were unable to reach first responders. As a result of the CDC report, the RCMP and other police forces acknowledged for the first time that they use IMSI sensors as part of their investigations. Lamontis also confirmed that some 911 calls may not work when deploying the devices. However, the RCMP says it takes all necessary steps to reduce the possible impact on emergency calls. For example, the federal police only activate the IMSI interceptors for three minutes at a time, followed by a two-minute pause. So if you're dying, you know, you've got like five minutes, you know, the last two are going to be the ones you can use to save your life. Machine said her associates plan to raise concerns about the issue with the Quebec Public Safety Martin Conu and the CRTC, which regulate 911 operators, to highlight concerns. Machine pointed out that authorities had not made any association aware of the possible impact of the technology on 911 calls. Quebec ex examines the impact. In an email, Cotol's office said it was examining the potential impact of such equipment on cell phone calls. Spokesperson added that the provincial police force does not use such, such devices. The CRTC, meanwhile, noted that it regulates only 911 providers and not the users of such devices, such as the RCMP. The regulatory agency added that it had not been aware of any incidences where 911 calls were blocked because of the devices. One of Canada's largest cellular providers, Rogers Communications, has already alerted the federal government about the risks associated with the use of IMSI interceptors for emergency services. As part of a recent federal consultation on national security, the company submitted a report to the federal government in December 2016. Okay, this report is dated in March, I believe. This is particularly important with regard to possible interference with access to emergency services and 911 service. The Office of Federal Public Safety Minister, Ralph Goodale, said that the use of such devices is limited and supervised by the courts. A spokesperson said the government will release a report on the results of consultations on national security in the near future. Well, damn. Right. To put it into context for people that aren't aware of such things. <laughs> right. So the RCMP have come back with the answer, oh, well, we don't leave it turned on. We use it for three minutes, then have a two-minute gap. Use it for three minutes, two minute gap. Right, I used to be a fire health and safety officer and trainer. Mm -hmm. Now, in three minutes, in the case of fire, you can go from a single flame size candle fire to the room that fire started in is completely burning in three minutes. Mm hmm. But yet they're like, oh, well, yeah, no, no, people will still be fine. You know, it's only three minutes at a time. So, yeah, you've just lost your house. Yeah. I'm sure you're going to be really you know, happy about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a problem. You know, the size of a fire in a building roughly doubles every minute. <laughs> so not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's not quite doubles. It's like an exponential curve. So yeah, fires get big fast. Mm -hmm. But they're going. Oh, well, we only use it for three minutes. And yeah, that's enough to for somebody to lose their house to fire. Yes, it is. Or you know, how long can you possibly do CPR on a person? Yeah. All right. Somebody has a heart attack. You have a window of time where you get their heart started and save their lives. 
It's not really that long a window. Other end of the scale from fire, hypothermia, yeah. Yes. Oh, I mean, how, how, long, how long before they need severe medical treatment? Yes. You know? I mean, and in Canada, that's a real concern. Oh, yeah. It's very cold there. It's very wintry. I mean, and, you know, most of the time till August, it's damn near frozen all the time. So, I mean, that's a problem. These things are a problem, and the government doesn't want to admit it. And They come back honestly, with, uh, it's only three minutes. <laughs> right, but honestly, this is the one thing that you could really bring it home with. If you wanted to protest its use in your city, yeah. and you wanted to get people behind you, this is the one way to bring it home. If you can tell people, you know, this this is the window you have to save somebody's life, or this is the window of time you have to save your house. And Some, you somebody's, somebody's attacking you in the street. Yeah. With a baseball bat. Yeah, three minutes is kind of annoying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> possibly he's trying to steal your mobile phone off you. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he'll be annoyed because it'll appear your, the phone he's just stolen isn't working. He'll probably beat you harder. Um, <laughs> I mean, these are real issues. There are real dangers involved. It's not just the danger to your privacy. It's a danger to your physical life. And that is something your government is supposed to take some sort of interest in. Although, if I were to judge my, the, my government's interest in my fucking life by the way they're treating e-cigarettes, uh, I would have to say they have none. Because uh, I am a bag of money, and they want my money. Um, so. But it is a real concern. It is definitely something to think about. And you're absolutely right. These are things we need to think about because it's kind of like I said, what you know about the technology now, right? The stuff that the police have is probably 20 years behind what is released to the federal government services, right? So I'm assuming that probably there's improved technology so that the MZ catchers won't endanger your life but i don't think that technology is out there or affordable for the local police departments to surveil you well when you when you talk about the 20 year thing yeah for instance other people who take part in the program um have come into conversation and said i was just reading the other day about that that thing where they can you know, work out what you're typing on your computer and what you're doing on your computer through you know Mm. what's happening to the power lines like, right, but that yeah, that, that's like ago. ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and if we're hearing about it now, so what can they do now? Yeah, you know. I well, mean, no, that that particularly won't have advanced too far because yeah, physics gets in the way. Uh, but right. <laughs> but well, uh, yeah, you know, so that's that's one. Yeah, general public <laughs> definitely haven't taken any notice of. It's like, yeah. yeah, they don't actually need to hack into your computer. No, they can just they can look live. They can see what you're doing. Um, well, I mean, I'll tell you, it, it's even worse. And this is where I sound, I sound like a fucking paranoid. No, I know I do. But if you have one of those wonderful, wonderful electric 
contraptions on your house that the electric company forced us all to put on here called the smart meter. They have access to all kind of information. And if they have access to it, the government has access to it. Probably your local police department has access to it. It's um it's it's something to be concerned about. Well in, in the next in the next year I'm gonna look forward to the explosion of stories about all the people who have smart stuff in their house. And <sighs> what happens when hackers decide to go in and play? I mean, and all my lights were turning themselves on and off, and my stereo kept doing this, and Alexa well, went gonna, bonkers, and you're like, yeah. What, what, mm -hmm. what did what you I think was going to happen? <laughs> what, I, what I was going to say to you is, have you seen, have you finally watched the second season of Mr. Robot yet, or no? No. Okay. So, <laughs> at the beginning of the second season of Mr. Robot, something similar to that happens. Just Yeah. Because we know, because, I mean, right, historically... Mm -hmm. uh, councils, municipalities, whatever you want to call them, didn't think yes. through things, right? No. <laughs> A good example is traffic light systems. Right. As they got more complex, they became basically a network. Mm -hmm. So there's a centralized system that controls the operation of all these lights all around right. the city. Mm -hmm. The first cities to do this <laughs> didn't protect the systems sufficiently. And it was uh, like 15 to 20 years ago, there was a whole spate of cities where the traffic lights were just going haywire, turning off, behaving strangely, timings getting changed. Uh -huh. Best one I heard of was, you know, the red, amber, green uh, right. One hacker changed the order they were lighting up in. Oh god! On not all the lights in the city, but just a few of them. Mm -hmm. And obviously, this caused chaos. But it wasn't widely publicised. But yeah, it was at that point that they realised we should have these on a non-connected system yeah. that the public can't get into. So they started. So now, traffic light systems, for instance, use their own cabling rather than connecting through the telephone system, which is what they used to do. Right. So yeah, just... it takes ages for this technology to, uh, <clears throat> well, for them to pay attention to even the basics of security. Because well, I, I mean, mean that that it... was basically government program. Okay, local well, government, but sure. they hadn't thought. Well, if we connect this to the phone system, somebody could go in and mess with it. Yeah. Well, for instance, um, did you ever see the the thing on drone technology where this guy at like a, a hackathon decided he was going to go and play with some drones? Yeah. And he goes in and he finds that Telenet is still enabled in all these systems. Yes. It's like the easiest thing to take over something with, right? So he manages to figure out how to shut them down, how to take their targeting, well, not their targeting, because it's not targeting, not, not the drones we use, but how to take their ability to track where they're going completely offline. They fall yeah. out of the fucking sky. Um, he just oh, did yeah, a bunch of Yeah, stuff. I mean, you just, can recalibrate the gyroscope. The gyroscopic oh, sensor and all sorts of things. Oh, sure. Yeah. Just by getting them through Telenet. 
and the fact that that's enabled and it's the oldest way to do things and the least secure that kind of scares me and a lot of the 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 drones the commercial drones that you can get or i can get they've never updated any of that technology and it's the easiest stuff there is to hack out there so i think hackers are, are out to prove a point they proved it in texas when they set off all of the alarms in that one town at midnight and set yeah. them off for an hour and a half um they're proving points every time they're able to create a botnet through security cameras and and make this lightning fast botnet well, out to, of nothing. to give to give people an idea of how fragile security is mm-hmm. i shall take the example of the eurofighter typhoon so it's the the latest generation european mainline fighter aircraft okay. it has the same computing power as the average, I think it's 30-story office block in one airplane. Roughly 60% of the computer power in that airplane is Mm -hmm. being used to keep that airplane secure from electronic interference. (laughs) All that computing power flying around, and most of, you know, more than half of it, is being used to make sure other people can't hack into it. <laughs> yes, I mean... Which tells you all you need to know about how fragile normal domestic electronics are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like what I've said before. I don't think... There's certain things... I don't think you need to have chips in your fucking hairdryer. I don't think you need to have them um, in your toaster or your fridge. Um, I pick older technology all the time. It's easier to fix, it's easier to work with, and it's a hell of a lot more secure. And, you know, I might not be paranoid that the government's out to get me, and I'm really not paranoid that the hackers are out to get me, but, you know, I also know I'm human. I also know, you know, I'm not super tech savvy, despite my extreme interest in technology. Um, And I would probably be relatively easy to hack. I'm not thrilled with the idea of that and for someone like me who's not super savvy the solution the best solution really is little to no tech i'm a low techer i love technology i love what it can do i love the possibilities of the future and the neat things that it can do but i'm also really wary because i wasn't i didn't go to a high school where we had computers I'm relatively new to the whole computer phenomenon and didn't really adopt them until I was in my 30s. So I'm in my like adolescence with this stuff. Yeah. Other people have had much longer one and they know what they're doing. I mean, and yeah, I'm, just I'm not I'm, one of those people. I would class myself as a teenager to the technology. Mm-hmm. And I've had a computer since I was seven years old. Yeah, well, I, I'm just... That's, I'm in, uh, for anyone who's interested, that's roughly around 1980. See, we weren't... I, I, my computer use well predates the internet and any of this well, interconnected security issues. Uh, <laughs> some of my yeah. early work in computing science indeed uh, coincided with the start of long-range electronic communication via telephone cables. Wow. And fun to be had uh, 
as a young Dialect. person uh, before laws got brought in to <laughs> mean that you really shouldn't be doing that stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Have you noticed, though, one thing? And, uh -huh. and this is the one thing I've kind of always noticed. When the government gets involved in stuff, it's because bad stuff's happened and they're so out of touch to have no clue what they're doing. Well, for um, instance, right, pe people won't know these stories because they don't mm -hmm. follow it. And the press, well, this press, press were suppressed somewhat. Um, it was sometime in the, it was during the space shuttle project, there was a bunch of German hackers had launch go, no go on one of the shuttles. Wow. NASA, one of the highest tech company, yeah, organizations in the world, hackers were in there and could have launched the shuttle because it was sitting on the launch platform. Yeah, there are lots of arrests. Uh, <laughs> and I believe the people involved did do quite a bit of jail time. Probably. But it was, it was, yeah, it was teenage, a bunch of teenage German hackers who were just yeah, playing I around. Mean, um, and and that's the thing. They, the, the kids who've done this longer than I ever will by the time I die, they just think differently about it. And a lot of times when they hack into stuff, um, not always, but a lot of times they're trying to show where the vulnerabilities in the system. There's actually a couple of, I don't want, there's a couple of things that have a couple of new programs, and I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that have managed to hack into all these interconnected devices and completely shut them down. Yeah, malware, yeah. Yeah. So, there's I mean, another one being reported today, I think. Yeah. yeah, see, I mean, I don't think they're doing that to be malicious. I think they're doing it to tell people there's danger there. Yeah. So, you know, white hat versus black hat, it's hard to know what you're dealing with. And all that stuff's a concern. And I'm like a techno idiot, so this stuff is still fascinating to me. And I learn something every time we do a show. Oh, yay, new CCC videos. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it's time for me to learn some new stuff. Yeah, no, no offense, good. Thomas, but... German teenagers seem to really like hacking. Um, They're very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> they What they know about computers, I'll never know. So I've got that going for me. But I can learn some of it. Oh, you know what I've been really interested in lately? Um, I don't, have I talked about I listened to this podcast called Rabbits? Uh, um, don't remember. It's from the, from the same people who do the black tapes and the Titanic. Um, and Rabbits is about, like, uh, an immersive world game, which I think people would find that podcast really interesting. But because of it, I've been studying game theory, which is really <laughs> interesting. Game theory is interesting as hell, especially from an economic perspective, um, which I, I didn't think it would be. But It's what reserve banks use to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah. It's what, but you it's what military you use to plan right sure but campaigns you don't, and you don't think it's all game theory but most of it is yeah so i've been i've been taking the harvard course in game theory which is <laughs> that, that is that is interesting stuff there you can just go 
anywhere. Game theory spawned yeah. role playing, so I mean, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's very it's really really interesting stuff. Yeah, it really is. Um, so yeah, uh, Rabbits is a great podcast. Um, Harvard has a really great online course you can take on game theory if you're at all interested in that. And we're like five minutes out, so I'm going to give myself a plug, which I never do. Later on tonight, this show will actually be available on my website, antinanny.com. If you missed anything, you can go to antinanny.com. There's a list of resources there and past episodes with show notes that you can look at. So it's not only released on the VP Live channel, which it's released on at some point after Kevin does his show, um, on Sunday. So it's it's out there and you can take a look it's uh it's free <laughs> so you can wander over there and get it later on this evening so no and not kids games for that um so i guess now we're down to four minutes so Sweet. um three muppets and advert <laughs> muppets and advert <laughs> thank you why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Thank you, you guys, and thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Good night, Thomas. Thanks for coming.